I knew him, I knew him. He did sit next to me when we saw, I showed him a rough cut of high anxiety. And he's, he, he laughed only once when the birds were shitting all over me. <laughs> <laughs> and then he got up and without a word and just departed. He, he left. He went, it took about half an hour. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't skinny, you know. He yeah. got, got, got that. Anyway, he left. I, and I said, oh, my God. He didn't like, he didn't like the film. Oh, how terrible. Next day, I'm a 20th Century Fox. Silver-covered pack, big box. I mean, I ripped the silver away. It's a box of wine. Chateau Aubriand, which is a very fine French wine, 1961, which is a great year. Wow. That, it must have been worth like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars Wow. With a little note, have no anxiety about high anxiety. It's a truly wonderful film, Love Hitch. Wow. And I began. That's amazing. Good evening. Welcome to the Shamley Supplements. Yet another way to drag out yet another analysis of the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. I'm your host, Zach Eastman, and it shall be very interesting to go back to the haven of Hitch. I didn't uh, didn't think initially that I would have to go back down to the Hitch well, but as I've found out, the, 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 the world of Hitchcock is way too fascinating to just relegate to only 25 episodes. Um, uh, I've been away from him for so long, though, that I thought my knowledge on the subject would have faded out a little bit. But um, uh, making uh, as I've been preparing for this particular supplemental uh, episode and the ones to follow, I found that my Hitch knowledge was just as strong as it was during the course of that initial series um so um when you talk of something over the course of a year you you tend to have it burned in your memory but um we're not going to reflect too much let's get down to the business of the day um when we left the silhouette we had managed to talk about all the facets and angles of hitch as a filmmaker uh, thus the goal was um uh, to basically encapsulate what makes hitchcock uh, a figure worth remembering um so for the supplements, the goal is going to be to elaborate on the elements of Hitchcock that are Hitchcock adjacent or subjects on Hitch that we didn't uh, have a place for in the initial series. Uh, an example is that at some point we'll be covering the Paradine case, uh, Hitchcock's transition from silent to sound, um, and uh, we already discussed elements of them, uh, but we haven't gone into further detail, which I'd like to, if possible. Um, and uh, th- so these are going to be... F- elaborations on subjects that were already talked about um, and we'll also go into other things such as the rem- the other bulk of Hitchcock silent films that don't necessarily fall into the realm of a Hitchcockian film um, we'll also talk about the fall of David O. Selznick with the parodying case um, and then we'll also be talking about the legacy of Hitchcock sequels that would uh, come after the master's passing this includes Psycho, The Birds and also remakes like the Rear, Rear Window remake and the stuff like that and how how the legacy of Hitchcock's content itself was expanded upon by other directors both to success and to failure um, 
For today's entry to the supplements, though, we're going to start on an obvious track known as Homage. Hitch, as a consequence of his genius, spawned much imitation and adoring homage of his work within other filmmakers. Whether it was the subtle touch of Scorsese with perspective, the holding tension uh, that Tarantino is able to deliver, uh, or the outright and ever so loving visual schemes of Brian De Palma. Um, the well of love for Hitch is super deep, and as cinema carries on, you will never cease to see it on screen as this medium continues. But with all of that, this particular host um, was only able to find one Hitch film that wasn't directed by Hitch. And I'm talking like a, tr uh, a very much a Hitchcockian movie through, all, through and through with every facet attended to and paid, a, uh, paid close attention to. In 1977, the master of suspense was taken on by the master of side splitting. Uh, and I mean, this man was really funny. You could almost say he was the king of this craft. And I'm under the impression that it's very good to be such a thing. Um, coming off a year after homaging the birth of cinema with his film Silent Movie, this filmmaker and his writing team decided to tackle the genre of Hitchcock. They considered Hitchcock a genre, and they decided to tackle that with another form of their satire and parody. Um, what followed was a loving homage that also served as an absolutely Hitchcockian story that could have feasibly been within the master's own output, if he chose to scale back in a few places. Um, what resulted is a comedy treasure that features everything from a psychotic Barry Levinson to bird droppings to Sinatra-esque ballads uh, in a bar. All of this under the blessing and even limited guidance of Hitch himself. And I speak, of course, of Mel Brooks's High Anxiety. Now here to talk with me about High Anxiety is a uh, returning guest to the yesteryear Ballyhoo realm, um, you, we've spoken with him for three hours on It's a Mad, Mad, Mad World, and today we might talk for five hours um, on the one of the kings of comedy and how he uh, shaped a loving, loving tribute to the Master of Suspense. Please welcome back Brandon Rose. Thanks for having me, buddy. Thank you for coming back. Um, I mean, full disclosure, as we're recording this, we've we, it was only been a couple of days since we recorded that Mad 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 World <laughs> episode, very true. which very true, which which uh, a little bit a little touch and go. We thought we lost some we we thought we lost some audio, but we thankfully found it. So um, so everything's going to be intact. It's going to be kind of like the restoration of uh, <laughs> it's a Mad 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 World, where you know, like we don't have the visual element, but we do have the audio. So here's some production stills to fill in yeah. the blanks. Make do with um, what you got. Oh yeah, exactly. What what else can you do in filmmaking? You've got to you've you've got to take what you can uh, grasp onto and uh, apply it wherein. Uh, so Brandon, uh, there's a bit of background for our discussion in general. So when I when when I started Shamley, uh, I sent out the request to you, um, to, like to be like pick a film or pick <laughs> pick three yeah. films, um, and. Uh, <laughs> As our conversations grew, because uh, we also were at the time we were working on um, a feature film that we're still developing called Gone Home. Um, but um, as the, the discussion grew, it kind of came to the realization that one of the things we'd love to talk about would be high anxiety mm -hmm. because it is so Hitchcockian. Uh, and so, because obviously because it's designed to be, but also that it kind of goes above and beyond in a lot of respects. Um and I will say that I'm glad that we decided to land this for you as your Shamley entry, if any, because there's a lot of uh, this film is not just a Hitchcock homage. It's kind of a satire on filmmaking itself in a lot oh, of respects. It's amazing, man. And <laughs> which 
I mean, like, <laughs> let's be honest. Like, you know, you sent me the Shamley, um, you know, the questionnaire, and like, I'm like, a, I'm mostly like a comedy guy. So I was like, ah, Zach, no. <laughs> To any of these other ones, but we could do <laughs> <laughs> we could do high anxiety because that's pretty much a Hitchcock film, and it's yeah. also insanely funny. I'm like, that's something yeah. I could do if I did three hours on any of you know Hitchcock's other like gems. I'd probably do them a disservice, to be honest. Yeah. I'd probably fall asleep, and that's not because I don't care. It's just a reality. Um. <laughs> yeah, which is totally fine. Now, I will say that, like, one of the things that, like, we could have had you do would have been, like, Mr. and Mrs. Smith or The Trouble with Harry. But mm-hmm. when Phil pitched those and his passion for it, I'm like, no, nah, it's it's got to be Phil to do these. Um, and that's why – it's also why I brought him back for Family Plot and The Farmer's Wife because I'm like, he's really good at uh, honing in on what Hitchcock was able to do for his humor. Absolutely. and. And and what we're going to be talking about today actually kind of serves as like an interesting way to contest contemporary critics of the era who had issue with this film. Not not to, you know, belittle their perspective or opinion. It's just more like pointing out where they might be um, misconstruing the their interpretation of the film because one of the arguments against high anxiety is is that because Hitchcock himself was a rather humorous director in his own right and had there's a lot of humor in Hitchcock's films like you've you've seen Psycho you've oh. seen The Birds you know there's humor in those movies well when, it's just that when, like when you're that blunt as a person there's going to be humor <laughs> put in there like anyway yeah exactly and 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 consequently. I think that the idea of parodying or satirizing Hitchcock as a genre meant that you also had to tackle Hitchcock's humor, which critics, it seems like critics found it to be like overstuffing it way too much or missing the point entirely. And I I think as we dive deep into the film, the plot and stuff, we're going to find that this this is, I mean, it's not an unfair criticism, but it might be a little bit... um, uh, uh, overutilized as a defense for their argument um, but there's got to be a little bit background in this so we're talking about uh, Hitchcock first for first and foremost on this show so Brandon what is your experience with Hitchcock how do you enter the world of Hitchcock as a young man or as an adult um, so how I you know first came across like, Hitchcock yeah and like what would be your first Hitchcock film I guess would be um, a better way to ask that question <laughs> honestly growing up and like really just gearing towards like comedies and we talked about this in the uh, other podcast um, college like when I went to college I actually sort of got immersed in Hitchcock's films and his style and like sort of like all the themes that he was dealing with so that's really the first time so like a young adult right yeah so then what would be the first one that you had seen if you could, like, p- trace it back? Or is it one where you just everything was kind of coming at you at once? Um, so I'm, I'm pretty sure I watched North by uh, Northwest, um, mm-hmm. Psycho, and uh, Rope all in the same <laughs> week. Ah, oh, I, I appreciate you watching my movie, Brandon. Like, not not a lot of people like to watch it. They think they think that it's technically deficient, but I'd argue that <laughs> they're fucking deficient. morons. <laughs> it might be a little deficient, but I'm so glad Jimmy's back. <laughs> but I mean, Jimmy Stewart's you know pretty clutch. So yeah, <laughs> you know, fucking he, a, I am. <laughs> he he might go God down as one. Right. He might go down as one of the Trump greats. I don't know if he's gonna hang around and be one of those legacy figures, but he might. 
Um, or, yeah, or, you know, I'm never going away. Are you fucking kidding me? I love getting on a podcast, yeah. Mike. <laughs> He's one of those eternal, you know, immortal things. Um, I haunt Zach's house. Fun fact. I, I am the ghost that haunts this fucking house. I have nowhere else to go, Brandon. I'm fucking <laughs> bored. <laughs> so, right. So, you know, I watch all three of those movies in one week. So I'm like, this dude is all over the place. He's all mm-hmm. over the place. I'm like, that's kind of cool. I like someone that can do that. So then I yeah. just kind of get started getting into everything else that Hitchcock has done from, um, you know, his little his Alfred Hitchcock Presents. I said little. Like, it didn't go on for, like, you know, numerous episodes. Um, <laughs> like, Rear Window <laughs> is one of my favorites. Um, well, that's what I mean. Like, you know, even when I, when I talk about Alfred Hitchcock, like, I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I watch it and I'm like, this guy is a little pompous. He's a little bit. But I also love it. I love how just bold and how he just doesn't care he doesn't give a shit and i love no, it no i don't give a flying fuck no. what you think like that's why i get in front of that camera and like i'm kind of giving you a middle finger with the amount of humor that 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 the, the monologist gave me for these introductions because as you can tell I, I i have better things to do like make art <laughs> dude literally every time you see hitchcock it's like you know he's lowering himself to talk to you I'm like, this guy yeah. is out of control. And then you find out <laughs> how he treated like his female leads and not, like just how he treated people. And you're like, for anyone that says I'm shocked, clearly you weren't paying attention. Um. <laughs> yeah, we, we talked a bit about that with um, uh, with the birds and Marnie specifically. And like and it. But in, the thing to keep in mind is that, that it's one of many elements to Hitchcock. You can't just pigeonhole him to those those occurrences. Um, you know, it, it, we, we talked about it with Olivia Carmel on the uh, Alma Revel episode about like the fact is, is that there's a lot of there's a lot of ways to appreciate Hitchcock while acknowledging those. Well, yeah, <laughs> those, he's those a great director. Things. Do you want to have a beer with him? No, absolutely uh, not. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, uh, uh, we're, we're going to talk about uh, uh, a director who clearly had no problem eating Chasen's with him, uh, <laughs> eating dinner at Chasen's with him multiple times near the and t- again, the right? We're talking about thing. Hitchcock. It's like. Like, we're talking about an icon. It's like, do you think if he was alive, he'd give a shit about us talking about him? Probably not. I, I, you know, I, I mean, well, fine. You know, I did really appreciate the fact that, you know, Mr. Truffaut uh, pointed me out to the fact that apparently I'm a cinema god in France. And I, but by extension, if I'm a cinema god in France, I assume that I am a cinema god everywhere because that's kind of like your, your nuclear point, And then it just expands from there like a mushroom cloud. But uh, so to answer your question, Brandon, yes, I do give a shit. In fact, you should be talking about me every day, every minute. <laughs> Look, man, if you um, keep doing this voice, I'm going to refer to you as Alfie for the rest of this for the rest oh, of this podcast. Used to, you know, some people called me Hitchy. Some people called me Hitch, Mr. Hitchcock. Alfie is one that I have not heard. Does that mean that I am a cat-eating alien or, like, the brother of a cat-eating alien? I don't know. Yeah, we get Alf up here. Fun fact, we get Alf up here. Alma and I fucking love that puppet. Um, well, but, uh, no. I, I imagine he wouldn't like the term Alfie. That's why I'd be no, like, no. all right, no, Alfie. Although, here there will be another story coming up about a different, like, Mel Brooks definitely had a name that he referred to. Uh, Hitchcock as and I will not be doing a Mel Brooks impression because you can't impersonate a master at the craft of comedy the way he is very true it would just sound disingenuous I know I did that with Carl Reiner on the Mad 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 World episode and I'm fucking sorry Um, I didn't say anything I didn't call it out I was like you know what he's gonna listen to this later and he's gonna realize what happened 
it, you it's not you it's me um yeah <laughs> um but anyway we are not here to talk about my terrible carl reiner impression we're here to talk about my anxiety um so i mean now here's the extent to this question like before we jump right into mel brooks so like knowing what you did of hitchcock uh uh after you got exposed to him did you start seeing where other directors were, you know, clutching at clutching at his legacy to uh, enhance their work, because, I mean, the obvious comparison is Brian De Palma mm-hmm. has been talked to death about that, and like it would be easy for us to do an episode on like Dress to Kill or uh, even The Untouchables has a lot of Hitchcock in it, like yeah. way more than yes. I, I remembered when I rewatched it this year. I'm like, wow, there is a lot of Hitchcock in this. Movie. Very much um, in the in The so, Untouchables, like there's a yeah. there's a bunch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the climax of that movie is very Hitchcockian. Um, but you, um, but 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 in terms of like other filmmakers, like where have you seen Hitchcock's influence the most? Like um, outside of what the movie we're going to talk about today. Um, you know what? Even a little bit in like what Christopher Nolan does, a little bit with like framing. Um, mm-hmm. Aside from when he, you know shoots it on those gigantic IMAX cameras. Um, <laughs> <laughs> especially in like his early <laughs> stuff his i think his early stuff i think he took a lot from hitchcock i mean tarantino for sure um mm-hmm. but he's sort of like he's kind of like just like an i don't know just like just receiving tons of information and just kind of like melts all this together and then kicks out a tarantino film so like there's little bits of influences with everybody in his stuff yeah um, the thing with Tar- the thing with Tarantino that I would argue is that he verbally does what Hitchcock does visually. He holds the tension mm-hmm. and he does do he he has a very good visual director as well, but like the the bomb under the table that gets talked about a bunch on Shamley, like Tarantino is very good at putting a bomb under the table and drawing that out as long as he can and keeping you on edge. Like the the most masterful example of it is in Inglorious Bastards, when Michael Fassbender's character um, uh, is disguising himself as a German with Diane Kruger, and they're in that um, bar playing the bar game with the names on the heads, um, yeah. and that which then leads to the the, the Mexican the Mexican standoff, as Brad <laughs> Brad Pitt calls it in that movie. Um, but like when he raises the wrong hand for three, um, you can see that. You see through the look on the uh, the actual German's face that a bomb has been placed under the table. He has found him out. Now the tension becomes, when does everybody reveal themselves to each other? Um, I will tell you right off the bat where I've found the most influence with it in terms of uh, a very modern filmmaker. Because De Palma's not really making much anymore. Um, uh, although, if you haven't watched that De Palma documentary, you need to fucking watch that It's pretty solid. It's- it's fucking incredible. The, the amount of stories in that thing is just bananas. Um, but I would say David Fincher is oh, one yeah. of the biggest successors to Hitchcock's yeah. throne. The and this is like and this is a joke just watch Gone Girl. To us. Yeah, Gone Girl, very much a Hitchcockian movie. It's a movie that I need to reexamine in the context of Hitchcock because when I first saw the movie, I was primarily looking at it through the story lens and it, you know, Gillian Flynn's an acquired taste I feel in terms of her literary work. But um, needless to say, I, I, I appreciated that film, but like it's grown in my head as like, dude, is that movie better than I remembered it being? 
Um, but I would argue that Zodiac is very much oh, yeah. an homage to the wrong man. Uh, and, seven. And also Seven, yes, Seven is very Hitchcockian in a certain respect. <laughs> now, um, especially Alien 3. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, I, I really felt that Alien 3 was the truest successor to my throne. And I, I, you know, them killing Newt in the first five minutes of that movie, I was like, that's a decision I would have made. That's a decision I absolutely would have made. I don't, I don't fault anybody. This impression off is going to go on forever. The, the most sympathetic <laughs> is... character in Alien, a- Aliens, getting killed in the first five minutes of Alien Three, it's just brilliant. You know, fucking brilliant. I didn't need to, you know, sympathize with anybody. Uh, apart from these newer characters that nobody gave a shit about before, but. <laughs> you love this voice. You love it. I do love it. It's kind of like Pat, it's kind of like Hitchcock on helium because my voice sounds like it's on helium. <laughs> um, but uh, but no, um, the um, the I will say though, like it, a lot of it also comes from Fincher's filmmaking technique because he there's a it's a joke in the industry and in film fan circles about how many takes he uses to get a shot. <laughs> Um, now that's yeah. not the yep. same as Hitch. That's not the same as Hitchcock, but it, it lends to the idea of like meticulous detail. If you watch the the behind the scenes of Zodiac, you will see a notebook being thrown to the side to the passenger side of a car fifty times. Mm-hmm. You will see that because he wants it at a certain angle in a certain way, the way he has visualized it in his head. Fincher has made the movie in his head. He's just asking that every single detail be down to the wire we're hearing stories now mank hasn't come out yet as far uh, um, as of this recording mank has not been released yet but gary oldman was like talking about it in the press he's just like how many fucking takes like <laughs> now gary oldman's gonna get angry no matter what but <laughs> well didn't robert Downey jr want to like want to like drop kick david fincher in the chest over how many he takes they were pro- doing he, he- he started protesting by peeing in bottles. <laughs> that's that's awesome. I love it. That's Iron Man for you guys. Yeah. I mean, like, and now, like, I I don't agree to that behavior, regardless of what Fincher's doing. But I get it. You're you're pissed. And now that digital cinema exists, I'm sure Robert Downey Jr. has just decided. You know what? Marvel only. Nothing else. <laughs> like, no, he just made his you know his his minimum higher. He's like, look, if yeah. I'm gonna be burdened by this, give me forty million. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's why also why he said that he wouldn't do a lot of independent films. But like you know, again, this isn't the Robert Downey Jr. cast, and you know, like I, I, I love Robert Downey Jr. I have thoughts about things he said. Uh, anyway, though, um, so but so clearly the influence of Hitchcock has extended yes. into many many realms. I mean, like I also think that Jordan Peele is doing it incidentally because of like I think Us is a very specifically framed film and specifically planned out on a visual scheme that. Well, I can't help but draw the comparison, even if he's not intending. Well, it. I think Jordan Peele is a very, very smart guy. So I think he's like you know doing this. I think he studied, you know, what pro- like I don't know like proper horror like cinema is, and like you know via that you're gonna run into a lot of Hitchcock. Yeah, because he sort of like wrote the book on certain things. So I think that's yeah. maybe why it shows up so much. But I think Jordan Peele's like style is like sort of like a little unique to itself because. Um, it's uh yeah, it's really interesting oh, yeah. watching his stuff. Jordan Peele has admitted has admitted that he's much more like he's he's a horror geek. Yeah, and yep. Hitchcock is not specifically horror. Hitch- Hitchcock made several horror esque films and two very very horror driven films, mm-hmm. um, but he was not exclusive to that. Um, 
So clearly the influence is all over this uh, man, you know, and it, it will continue today. As we discussed in the final episode of Shamley, th- 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 there's, you're seeing it up into Joker. Like, I mean, we've talked about Joker and our reception to it, but there are Hitchcockian moments in Joker, specifically in the uh, Adam Roach pointed out, the, and I didn't think about it until he pointed it out, that when they're in the apartment, when uh, when Joaquin Phoenix is in the apartment and his uh, co-workers come and try to, mm-hmm. you know, uh, yes. convince him to not yep. reveal everything about the gun, and then he kills that guy, there's a lot of Hitchcock intention in that scene. And, I, and, you know, for all I can say about that movie and how I feel about it on a thematic level, I will say that Todd Phillips is, if nothing else, a very efficient... Uh, director when it comes to making things look as effective as they can. It's why the Hangover movie still holds a place in my heart is because it's a very well shot comedy. Yeah, very, um, very well shot. Yeah, and and even Due Date does the same thing too. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't like Due Date as much as Hangover, but you know, again, this isn't the Robert Downey Jr. cast. <laughs> um, <clears throat> but anyway, though, so like the influence is all over this. So for us to talk about Hitchcock influence we'd be talking about a multitude of films. Now, the reason I chose High Anxiety as the initial, like, ultimate homage is the the story that we're talking about, as I said before, it's a story that feasibly Hitchcock would have done this story. Now, when I say this story, you might be thinking, like, well, Zach, he's homaging all of his other films. I'm like, yes, but there is a plot that is original to itself in this movie. It's just that what it's infused with is different elements of Hitchcock to give off that sheen. But if you were to break down the story of a the head of a, a psychiatric institute framed for murder, <laughs> that is a story in and of itself. You can do that as a typical thriller. This is just it's just that he threw in the Hitchcock elements with his writing team um, to create a Hitchcockian story that could operate. It could be a movie that Hitchcock would have taken and said, I'm going to make this my own. Mm-hmm. You know, like that that's something that he could have done in order to uh, in, like as like it, it could have been like if he had done it in the 70s, he could have made it like his extension off of Frenzy as like a new wave horror movie or a new wave Hitchcock movie. Oh, yeah. Um, instead, but, instead of, you know, drumming up like the suspense that Hitchcock would have mm-hmm. done, you know, yeah. um, Brooks drummed up the comedy and how like the insanity of like certain moments and it's like oh okay that's where it shifts to a comedy it's very well yeah. shot high anxiety is very well shot it yeah it could and yeah i mean it it, it honors it, hitchcock very well oh yeah and it and it's an it, you know mel brooks i think is a director that gets relegated solely to comedy and then people start poking holes in his legacy and like i i am under the impression and belief that Mel Brooks left the industry as strong as he came in because while Dracula Dead and Loving It is not a supreme masterpiece, it is just as just as fun as anything that he was doing in the 90s. Um, is it better than Young Frankenstein? No, but it's still fun. Um, and when it comes to Mel Brooks, when you talk of Mel Brooks, you can't just talk about the comedy. He is a filmmaker. He has a filmmaker's eye. He has a visual sense. He applies his knowledge when it is appropriate to the project. Um, if you watch The Twelve Chairs, it is a stunning, stunning movie on a visual scheme. Um, when you watch this film that we're talking about today, 
Same thing here. The difference is, is that at this point, Mel has <laughs> transitioned into um, what some people have called spoofing. Um, now, I would say... But spoofing that is spo- like, that's just inaccurate because he's, he's treating it with such respect. Yeah. Like spoofing, this I is- feel like, is like, you know, a little lower in like... Um, quality or like you know the like you're trying to take the piss out of something and that's not what he was trying to do with this he was like he was just showing so like pull- the great comedy that it, i don't know yeah it's it's a it's hard for, to phrase it in a way where it's like you know making it seem like brooks wasn't just trying to like spoof hitchcock because i don't think that's what he was trying to do no um a mocking imitation of some th- someone or something usually light and good humored lampoon or parody is the definition of spoof I use the term satire, um, holding up human vices and follies to ridicule or scorn, and or wit, irony, or sarcasm used to expose and discredit vice and folly. It's one of many different ways to describe satire. I've always felt that satire is when you are um, adhering to the rules of the art itself while pointing out the ridiculous nature of some elements of it. And I think that high anxiety does do that. It does point out ridiculous things in Mm -hmm. Hitchcock movies, um, not to discredit them so much. So I guess that that's where satire might fall off, but it is to point out how much humor there is in Hitchcock because when he does blazing saddles, Mel Brooks is satirizing cowboy tropes he's pointing yes. out how ridiculous a lot of them are whether it's racist tendencies or villainous qualities or the intelligence of townsfolk in those movies where <laughs> they're portrayed as the wholesome natured people that you should side with but in reality they're a bunch of racist dickheads and like that's that's what he does with that in uh in high anxiety i feel like he's satirizing the filmmaking technique that's the satire here the satire is pointing out some of the ridiculousness within angle choice, camera movement, yep. cinematic techniques. We're going to talk about a movie that is supremely visual and does a lot with it to satirize Hitchcock's filmmaking technique. Because arguably, a lot of the flourishes that Hitchcock brings to a film, regardless of how impactful they are to thematic uh, thematic presentation um, or visual schemes in order to convey emotion. There are moments where it's like, well, this doesn't make logical sense. And so that's what Mel Brooks is doing in a good featured manner. So I guess maybe yeah, spoof yeah. and satire blend a little bit. Parody is a good term for it as well. Um, I just feel like spoof is much more trying to go beat for beat on one specific plot and then just absolutely making fun of it with no respect for the material. I feel like that's, you know, that's why I don't consider airplane a full on spoof is because like they are technically treating the genre of that kind of movie with respect because they're having all the dialogue is straight. They're just playing it funny Um, or, or delivering it straight and it just comes off as funny. Um, But there should, we should give a little bit of Mel Brooks background um, as much as possible. Now we're going to be talking about Mel in the grand scheme of yesteryear Ballyhoo review, because his first film does lie uh, on the threshold of 1968 um, where it, it operates on traditional uh, tendencies, but is very, very much a transition point. Um, But Mel uh, born in New York, Mm -hmm. a veteran of world war two and essentially 
he started off. So Mel started off as a Borchbell comic and he eventually worked his way up into doing stuff for the Admiral Broadway review. He ended up doing work on Broadway. And then in the fifties, he was hired as a writer for Sid Caesar's Your Show of Shows. Um, this writing staff is of epic legend. It consisted of people like Carl Reiner, Neil Simon, Danny Simon, uh, Mel Tolkien. A gold standard. Yeah, and Larry Gelbart, too. Um, you know, and so, and your show of shows is still one of those sketch shows that's supremely hilarious from the era where the comedy does really hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in the 60s, he gains even more traction by co-creating Get Smart with Buck Henry. Also, he develops a um, a genius comedy act with Carl Reiner called The 2,000-Year-Old Man, which <laughs> if you don't know what The 2,000-Year-Old Man is, guys, you need to fucking sit down and listen to all those goddamn albums because not only is Mel genius in it, but Carl is a supreme straight man in those routines. Like, he is... He is the master of straight man in a two in a, in a uh, two person act. Like the only other person who can compare with him is a person that he directed in the seventies, and his name is George Burns. So uh, clearly, Mel runs the gamut. In nineteen in nineteen sixty seven nineteen sixty eight, he produces his first film called The Producers. Um, which is based um, slightly off of a person that he knew in real life. <laughs> um, and uh, basically it's a film about two two gentlemen played by Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder uh, try to find a uh, find and produce a Broadway play that is so terrible that it'll flop and then they can keep the investors' money and fly to Rio de Janeiro. They end up finding a, uh, uh, a script called Springtime for Hitler written, uh, written by Franz Liebkin. Uh, and uh, they cast... A, uh, so good. A, 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 they cast a man named LSD to play Hitler, and the movie, uh, the show ends up becoming a huge success. So they themselves find themselves in the position to go to prison because they've lied about the investments and how much people own in this show. Um, after producers wins an Oscar, um, he gets his follow-up film, The Twelve Chairs. Twelve Chairs is not as successful, but again, you should watch that movie because it's fucking beautiful. Um, he uh, finds himself. Uh, unemployed to his own words for a little while um, after 1972 before um, uh, David Beagleman comes up to him on the street and says, I've got a project for you called Tex X. Uh, <laughs> Tex X written by Andrew Bergman ended up becoming Blazing Saddles, which again has a, an, an insane writer's room. Um, and within that same time, Gene Wilder pitched Mel an idea on doing a tribute to Frankenstein <laughs> and Mel ended up directing it and co-writing elements of it with Gene Wilder. It's really Gene Wilder's writing baby, um, but he makes Young Frankenstein. Oh, um, so those two, classic, those two, classic right there. Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein come out in the same year. They are huge box office successes. Like they are massive. They are so much so that Mel was able to walk into Alan Laddie, Alan Laddie's office, Alan Ladd Jr., who would end up becoming much more influential down the line for a space saga. Um, he, uh, uh, he went up to Alan Ladd and goes like, okay, I want to make an homage to silent films. And he was afraid that Alan Ladd was going to freak out because he's like, first you took the color out of young Frankenstein. <laughs> now you're going to take the sound away. Like, um, <laughs> and, crazy. But to, to, Al, to Alan Ladd jr's credit, he said, he gave him the go ahead. Uh, they made silent movie, uh, silent movie. Um, it is a is it is a financial success for the most part, um, and uh, had had a lot of uh, uh, 
mixed critical reception because they're like, uh, not everybody is completely uh, 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 sold on the concept, but they do agree that it is a loving homage to the genre of silent film, or I guess the era of silent film, because silent film is not really a genre; it's an era. Um, and it and and this film also cleans up uh, at nominee wise at the Golden Globes, where it gets nominations from best picture all the way down to best supporting actor for Marty Feldman, which I absolutely agree with on that sentiment. Um, so the, the writer's room on silent movie ends up being very important on it. So the writer's room on, uh, on silent movie is Mel Brooks, Ron Clark, Rudy DeLuca and Barry Levinson. (laughs) Um, so the uh, this is a writing team from heaven because completely at unknowns, that same, complete unknowns. <laughs> yes. You know, I mean, like, you know, <laughs> it's not as if we're going to talk about one particular individual who would end up becoming an Oscar winning director. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also have comedy legends, really comedy legends within this writer's room. I mean, Rudy DeLuca is uh, he. He opened the comedy store with Shammy Shore in 1972. This guy has been all over the board. Um, he's If you don't know who Rudy DeLuca is, you would probably remember him uh, as Vinny in Spaceballs. That's, he's, he's Pizza the Hut's right-hand man. Um, but Rudy is also... Um, uh, he's in our movie today. He plays a very prominent role in the film. Um, and then Ron Clark, um, it, it, this this guy wrote for the Smother Brothers. He wrote for Danny Kaye. Uh, he uh, he he had a writing partner, Sam Brobrick, and they made a play called uh, Norman. Is that you? So they, he worked on Broadway, um, and he ended up uh, working on television with stuff like Silver Spoons and Moonlighting. Um, he wrote. Revenge of the Pink Panther, and um, did much more work with Mel over the years. Didn't he write uh, Life Stinks and then Dracula? And- yes. Yes. He yeah. Well, he wrote Life Stinks. Um, his last credited um, uh, piece is as an actor in The Last Laugh. Um, but, I, I mean... This this writer's room is fucking nuts, Brandon. Like I, I would, you would dream to have. Oh man, that kind of uh, that that kind of uh, career, like period, in any situation whatsoever. I mean, I mean like, t- I mean, t- I knew Barry Levinson was going to be, you know, I, as a kid, you know, I was like, all right, well, this is why he's so great, you know, watching High Anxiety, like just the way he delivered that newspaper to Mel Brooks was just phenomenal. Yeah, no, it's it's well, we're, we'll get to it. So let's not let's not spoil it yet because it's so much fun. Um, but yeah, no, like obviously Barry Levinson, the last one, he starts his directing career with Diner. He gets all the way. He's still working technically. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rock the Casbah is his latest one. There's arguments, and I, I don't disagree with them entirely that his directing uh, career has kind of slid down a little bit. But I still find a lot of fun stuff within his uh, Man, work. He I made sleepers. I love yeah. sleepers. Like sleepers is good. Uh, toys is, yeah, it's a movie. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, young Sherlock Holmes. I'll bring it back to positivity. Do, uh, young Sherlock sphere? Holmes. Didn't he do that? That horror. He did sphere. Yeah, yeah, he did sphere. Yeah, yeah. Again, well, but you not know what? completely go back to, foolproof. He did sleepers. Anytime he did I see sleep. something, I'm like, I don't like that. Really, he did sleepers, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> 
<laughs> Sleepers is insane. Um, actually, and also one that I think is enjoyable. It's not perfect, but it is super enjoyable is Bandits uh, with uh, Bruce Willis and uh, Kate Blanchett. Um, it's yeah, got, that was it's pretty some, good. Yeah, it's yeah, got some flaws. I enjoyed it's, that. It's, it's what it is. Yeah, and uh, this is one that I don't think people talk about enough is Man of the Year. Um, I think Man of the Year is wonderful. It's one of my favorite Robin Williams performances. Um, but anyway, so we've got this writer's room. Now, they all consider Hitchcock a genre, and Mel Brooks is a massive Hitchcock fan. Mm-hmm. He has reported amongst his influences or like passions is he likes Hitchcock. So they all come across the idea of, like, well, let's turn um, – hit the genre of Hitchcock into one of our uh, parodies. Um, and so the, 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 the story goes is, is that uh, Mel uh, called up Hitchcock and basically told him, look, this is what we're going to do. Um, and we want your blessing. So not only does Hitchcock acquiesce to that, he invites him over to his bungalow at, uh, Universal, uh, which is the bungalow that Hitch uh, remained at up until 1974 uh, when he, uh, 1976 when he um, left Universal and left directing forever. Um, the uh, He goes to the bungalow and he proceeds to pitch Hitch the story and Hitch was rather taken uh, taken by it. He liked it. He, um, he, he went through the story with him, broke it down, and basically pointed out where he might need to adjust things or where he would recommend they would adjust things. Mm-hmm. And then Hitch told him, like, I've got a great bit you can use for, for <laughs> this movie. And I will say this is a wonderful bit, and I wish it had made the movie. Uh, Hitch says, like, so there's a man running away from the police, and he has to jump over a ferry, uh, jump over a distance to a ferry to escape the cops. So he leaps in the air, and he hits the ground, the ground of the ferry. Success. He's landed on the ferry. The ferry is backing up <laughs> toward the cops, and they shoot him dead. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. And Mel and Mel went went. That is wonderful. And and it seems like I don't know if he didn't want to use it because he wanted to do his own thing, but it sounds like with the budget for high anxiety, like we can't afford a ferry. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, maybe we can't you know, what it just didn't afford. work. Yeah, it it with the story that he told. No, it doesn't work. But that is a wonderful. Like it's funny. Like Mel Brooks wrote a wonderful Hitchcock story. Mel uh, Alfred Hitchcock told a wonderful Mel Brooks joke. <laughs> like, <laughs> well, dude, I mean, you know, I think Hitchcock was on board with it because let's be honest. If Mel Brooks at this time, nineteen seventy seven, well, you know, when whenever he was on, when was he pitching the story? Like seventy five, seventy four. Um, it would have been 76. Yeah, right. Or around 70, 75, 76. Yeah. yeah, right. So like, he's like, all right, he just had had Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and the producers, all like super successful, right? Like super mm-hmm. successful. So he's like, oh, well, you know, if he's coming here, that means I must be doing something right. And he's doing it with a high level of respect. So it's like, yes. this is a fun thing. It's like a Mel Brooks yeah. is like gonna be like making a movie sort of in your style it's like oh shit this is wonderful even hitchcock was like this is this is fun yeah he he was able to understand what was going on with it and uh as far as the production of the film is concerned there's a couple of notes before we jump into the plot uh he mel mel understood that if you're going to parody hitchcock it's not just the stories Mm -hmm. you have to emulate the style 
he has a quote from one of his interviews. I watched the kind of film we're making with the director of photography. Uh, so he knows not to be frivolous. He, he's got to get the real lighting, the real texture. For high anxiety, it was what is a Hitchcock film? What does it look like? What does it feel like? Mm-hmm. How does he light them? How long is a scene? What is the cutting? When does he bring things to a boil? We just watch everything. So he studied Hitchcock intensely to do what he's doing here because the result that we get with high anxiety is that a lot of the satire and the parody, as I alluded to earlier, is coming in the form of filmmaking itself and the Hitchcock style and not specifically the stories. When you think of a spoof, you're thinking of like you're parodying a story um, or you're, you're making fun of a story satire and parody within that. Like you try to adhere to the rules and boundaries of the genre you're tackling Um, and within or the idea that you're tackling like like Lubitsch was really good at satire because he latches on to the idea of uh, the certain ideas within a political frame, my frame frame of mind or uh, uh, an element of humanity that that's what he's satirizing. Um, But uh, Mel Brooks is satirizing filmmaking itself in a lot of his movies. And in this one in particular, I think he hits the nail right on the head in the best of ways. Um, well, dude, and, uh, like I said, he, he, he was using such a high, he had such high regard for what Hitchcock does, right? Yeah. And he, he put that into high anxiety. And, like, I don't know if this is true, but didn't, like, uh, didn't Hitchcock walk out of the premiere, like, didn't say a word, like, and um, Brooks, like, thought, oh, shit, he's pissed. And, like, apparently yeah. he sent him, like, a case of wine or something, something, because, uh, like, Brooks, like, likes wine or something. And, uh, so this is, yeah, I said uh, that he loved it. <laughs> yeah, so this is this would have been for the end of the uh, episode, but it's it's fine to talk about it now because like so Hitch, uh, uh, walked out of the screening, didn't say a word. Uh, Brooks was a little anxious about that. He got a, yeah, he had a little high anxiety over it. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, um, so but later he received six magnums of 1960 Chateau Haubriand. Wine, it's a really fucking expensive wine, according to Mel. I'm not a wine guy, so I couldn't tell yeah, you. Yeah, neither am I. But, yeah, but Chateau Montbrion, like that, that, that's a name I hear. So I'm like, oh, clearly it means something. It's like Rolex. I'm like, <laughs> it's just a watch. But clearly it means something to somebody. Um, and there was a note attached going, have no need to have high anxiety. The film was lovely. So... Yeah, Hitch liked it. And we will talk about afterward what Hitch found funny in the film specifically. But um, within this, there's a couple of uh, like other small production notes in it. Um, so there's special effects in this movie of a Hitchcockian nature. Again, Brooks is studying the the technology, uh, the technique of Hitchcock. That includes the special effects. Somebody, somebody that we've talked about on the Shamway Silhouette before is Albert Whitlock. He did the matte paintings and a lot of the uh, helped with a lot of the visual effects of Hitch's films to extend the um, the scale of the film. So, like if they're doing uh, like in Vertigo, uh, the bell tower has matte painting extensions on it, and if you watch Vertigo on a Blu-ray player, you can see where. Uh, the blending comes from the physical set into the matte painting itself. Yeah. Yeah. But this was all done by Albert Whitlock, yep. who was a master 
a master of uh, of those those kind of visual effects and matte paintings specifically. His matte paintings for the birds are some of the most beautiful paintings on their own merit you will ever see. Whitlock worked in the Gamo Studios starting at the age of 14, uh, like started in 1929, so he kind of worked his way up throughout the course of cinema's earliest years. So he he's he he agrees to come on and do uh the visual effects for high anxiety and as he's doing all these map paintings for and all the visual effects for it mel brooks turned to one of the co-writers and said like what do you think for him what do you how do you how do you think him for madeline khan's father in the movie and not only did the co-writer agree but whitlock agreed so Whitlock is not only doing the matte paintings and the visual effects, he is an actor in the movie <laughs> playing Madeline Kahn's actual father in the movie because there, there's kind of a point within the uh, 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 film where you think it's somebody else. But anyway, what, why don't we go ahead and jump into the plot of High Anxiety All because right. the plot of this film is super wonderful. Oh, it's, it's amazing. Let's go through the credits real quick. Directed um, and produced by Mel Brooks. Uh, written by Mel Brooks, Ron Clark, Rudy DeLuca, Barry Levinson, starring Mel, Madeline Kahn, Cloris Leachman, Harvey Corman, Ron Carey, Dick Van Patten, Howie Morris, uh, Ron Clark, Rudy DeLuca, Barry Levinson, and of course, Albert Whitlock, um, along with Charlie Callis and Jack Riley. This is a stacked cast of comedy legends oh, yeah. on top of uh, one matte painting legend. Uh, this music by John Morris, the wonderful uh, late John Morris. Um, uh, I I would argue I I, I was on set with um, uh, Zach Spiegel on Gone Home, and I was I went into a spiel for five minutes about how John Morris is one of the most genius composers of our era, and I stand by that. Um, and cinematography by Paul Lohman, edited by John C. Howard. Film was released on Christmas Day, 1977, uh, with a budget of 4.015 million dollars. It made 31 million at the box office, Bam. so it was it was a, it was at the very least a moderately good success. We open up the film. There's a title card dedicated to the master of suspense, Alfred Hitchcock. Lovely. Um, before that, you hear the 20th Century Fox fanfare, and you see the 20th Century Fox logo. Um, for any kids who are listening 50 years down the line, that used to be a studio. Uh, it's no longer a studio because it's been combined and conglomerized by uh, another studio and turned back into the name of what it used to be uh, before the merger with Fox initially back in the old days. Uh, so as you see, I'm very pissed. Anyway, uh, we're we're going to uh, <laughs> jump into this plot now. So a plane is uh, uh, flying through the air. We hear uh, the uh, the gal tell everybody to fasten their seatbelts and uh, uh, remain seated until the plane is stopped. And the this opening shot of the wheels coming down, and you see the title, and you start hearing Morris's score kick in. It's just a wonderful way to kick you into this Hitchcockian movie with the most like it's very much an homage to the opening of North by Northwest in terms of the music's impact. It doesn't have a title. The one thing this film doesn't have is an elaborate title sequence Mm -hmm. like in a Saul Bass fashion. But that's fine because Hitchcock is not relegated to only that when it comes to his credit sequences. He had many different types. Um because obviously Saul Bass wasn't involved in every one of them, and Saul Bass was also trying to claim credit for a lot of shit. Um, but um, anyway, we we scan the plane. There's other people, you know, looking down at the sky below, and you just see Mel uh, Mel Brooks <laughs> well, yeah, scared shitless. And, and visually, <laughs> we're sort of set up that like this could be a Hitchcock film. 
in, with, especially yes, with the score. It, mm-hmm. that, that score kicks you in. It tells you that you are in for an escapist entertainment with excitement, with intrigue, with danger. Like it, Morris is communicating everything through this beautiful yeah. composition, which is extended off of the song. Like the, the theme itself, it's extended off of the song that Mel wrote for, <laughs> uh, for the movie, which we'll talk about later. It's one of my favorite songs of oh, all it's time. A gem. Not, it's not even a, it's not even a question in my mind. Like it's in my top five songs that I want played played at my funeral. Um, but, um, uh, so he, the plane lands, uh, he gets off the plane and as he's getting off the plane and into the, uh, into the, uh, into the airport itself, you know, you hear the heavy breathing of a woman who emerges from the crowd. Looks like he's going to stab him with an umbrella. She runs into him and Mel's like, no. And then she just goes to hug the guy that's behind Mel. Yeah, like it. Her, her, the look on her face is fucking beautiful. Like, so it's really digging into that. Like, some of the more psychotic characters that would be in a Hitchcock film. Uh, he goes to right away, <laughs> right, right away. Yeah. He lands in L.A. and it's chaos, right? I th- yeah. yeah, I think yeah. Not unlike when you actually land in L.A. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, another thing that like you know Mel Brooks does very well is like sets up his character. So this lady's yeah. rushing him. All he does is braces for impact. He doesn't try to run. Yeah. He's just like, all right, well, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So he just braces for impact. And luckily for him, she goes right by him. He's like, oh, my God, I missed you so much. And then he walks mm-hmm. through the terminal, and then he gets pulled over by what we assume is a detective. So already we're pointing into you know the fear of authority. Yep. The fear of the police, which is very prevalent in Hitchcock's work mm-hmm. and, you know, goes back to that story about Hitchcock being put in prison at age five for a minor offense <laughs> by his father. <laughs> but then he, you've heard the story, right? He gets, oh. he gets put in the jail cell Wonderful by his father. And he says, this is what we do to naughty boys. He sits in the cell for five minutes and then the cop let him out. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, <laughs> so that's why like I don't four... have kids, because I think that that's a yeah. reasonable thing to do. That's why I don't have any. <laughs> <laughs> You would have been a terrible parent, oh. and I'm really glad that you're not going to reproduce. Oh man! Oh, it's I'm just like create, that's a great idea. You, it's like wait, no, that's uh, wrong. <laughs> all you do is create people like me. <laughs> oh, but uh, so he gets pulled over by this cop. He gets taken into the bathroom, and we get the flasher sequence. Now, the one thing that you when you talk about Brooks's work, especially the one thing that hasn't aged the best. It, it 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 varies film by film, but is just like the uh, the jokes regarding homosexuality are very very dated. They're very very much of the seventies era. This one I think is the is the lightest one that still kind of holds up in terms of like him, you know, being a flasher and go like, what do you think of this? <laughs> like, and well, I love the line of like, uh, you're not a cop. They wouldn't take me. Yeah, right. <laughs> so like, that's the folk. He's like, I wanted to be, but they wouldn't accept yeah. me. Like, and, that, and, the, and the line is he leaves after like, don't be so gauche. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> well, and he's, he's really beyond like, you know, like if it's homosexual or not, right? He's mostly a flasher. That's what he's getting his yeah. rocks off on is f- like yeah. exposing himself to people. Yeah, and 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 here's the thing that here's a good wonderful thing in regards to that is like 
Hitchcock was known to touch on homosexual subtext in his films, whether it be Rope, whether it be uh, Strangers on a Train. Uh, there's definitely like uh, there's definitely a lot of stuff going on in um, uh, Lady Vanishes with Charters and Caldecott that is very British humor that could be mm-hmm. perceived in certain nature with regards to Charters and Caldecott. So he's touching on the, the he's uh, satirizing the and the idea that you had to hide yes those um those jokes in the movies of the earlier era he's satirizing like be like it's ridiculous to hide this it's very uh, obvious yeah like now yep. he's doing this in general but it lends so well to hitch because hitch would do it um so he gets out of the bathroom and this montage continues of frantic editing like a mon- like it's it's the definition of montage here if you frame freeze frame all the frames in the montage of high anxiety at the opening, you are seeing very good work by a director who's catching paranoia or uh, a POV of what a paranoid person feels mm-hmm. like. You have people looking at the camera suspiciously. You've got the frantic uh, motion of the airport itself. There's a lot of great stuff in here to uh, that complemented with the music gets you in the mode of this is a Hitchcock movie. This is a Hitchcockian movie. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, he he goes through the he gets th- out the airport and as he leaves, he just says the line, "What a dramatic airport." <laughs> yeah, and it's <laughs> lovely line. It's beautiful. It's perfect. It's yeah. like because it was yeah. just chaos. Yeah, just absolute mass, mass, mass insanity going through. Um, he uh, is then approached. Uh, that, by the way, at this point, we learn that his name is Doctor Richard H. Thorndike, um, which is very much a homage to Richard Thornhill, Roger Thornhill in um, North by Northwest. Um, and uh, <laughs> he is greeted by Brophy. <laughs> oh man. Played by Ron Carey. I love him. Uh, who is who says I'm here to be your driver and personal. Uh, I'm here to be your driver and sidekick. <laughs> like, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yep. Now the the thing about Brophy is is that on its surface he is not uh, an homage to a specific Hitchcock character. However, one could make the argument that he is an homage to some of those side characters that are in Hitchcock movies, like Foliot in foreign correspondent oh, yeah yeah he's um, just or even he's representing an idea yeah and he's also it's not even just a hitchcock idea because this is not hitchcock specific he's the sidekick character in every 30s and 40s movie yes. comedy specifically where they're just there to hang around but he does carry a hitchcock trope in that his passion is photography <laughs> and that's that's you can't have a camera in a Hitchcock movie without thinking about rear window. Um, and he does that little photo session with him where <laughs> he's surprised by the photos and then just embraces it and starts doing the, um, uh, the I'm going to make it after all from Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, uh, and uh, Ron Carey was a, uh, Ron Carey was a special kind of uh, comedian. Uh, he, he, uh, he played uh, officer Carl Levitt on Barney Miller um, but he had this uh, act uh, that he did in clubs in New York where he would pretend to be the strong man, where he'd do the I got it, I got it. He would do it with dumbbells. He does it twice in this oh, movie. So with good. First with the luggage trunk, and the first time it works beautifully because it's 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 just the, the joke is allowed to play out, and then finally they he goes, let me get it, and he goes, that's a better idea. They get in the car, 
and we basically get the exposition dump. But yeah. um, it's very much like you know, like Richard Thorndike has come to take over um, the psychiatric psychiatric institute for the very very nervous. Um, which is one of the most um, the psychoneurotic institute for the very very nervous, which is the most <laughs> prestigious uh, mental institution in the West Coast, <laughs> um, and uh, they uh, Brophy, they allude Brophy to the sets fact it up that like you know in his opinion it might have been foul play or something I forget exactly what he says. Yeah, and the, they they he goes like um uh like I can't believe they got you a big shot um to take over after Doctor Ashley died and um he uh. You know, Thorndike goes like, yeah, it's sad, but one can never predict a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And Brophy's just like, I, heart attack, sure. If you ask me, I suspect that th- I suspect that Dr. Ashley was a victim of foul play. And then you hear the music kick oh, in. Yeah. <laughs> and then as he, he started looking around, trying to figure out where the music's coming from. <laughs> like, And Ron Carey, Mel's doing a great job of it. Ron Carey is looking up and down the car, <laughs> like just trying to pinpoint the location. They look out the window. The Los Angeles Philharmonic Orchestra, Symphony Orchestra, is in a bus playing oh, man. <laughs> like i hate it when that pass. happens no, 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 don't you hate when orchestras are just driving by and like giving you the wrong soundtrack to oh, your life the worst <laughs> and uh, and you know like you know you know brophy calm down you forget that you're talking about you're talking about one of the most prestigious institutions institutions in america and he's like well maybe i'm wrong maybe i'm wrong yep. maybe i'm wrong i know i'm right <laughs> <laughs> um and then we get that Albert Matt, uh, Albert Whitlock map painting of the exterior of the Institute on this cliff next to a, a large <laughs> light tower. <laughs> so it's like, it, it's like the most Hitchcockian set piece you can have is like off of a cliff, yep. which kind of hits on a little bit of re- like certain elements of Rebecca and such. And then you've got the tall tower, which is an ov- obvious reference to vertigo. Um, and then you get this, the Institute, which the Institute and the basic plot of this film draw a lot from spellbound um which the idea of uh not only richard thorndike having uh his own malady and trying to overcome it but also the goings-on in an instant uh, uh, psychiatric institution um so like if the script uh the script is drawing off of anything the most i would argue that it's spellbound um in terms of its basic construction and vertigo it's kind of a split situation well, it's, with it, because ver- yeah, it's really interesting because, like, you know, by the time we get to the, you know, the institution, um, we know exactly what kind of story we're in. Yeah, we know. Which we're, is we're not, we, I'm, really hard to do, <laughs> like, while also, you know, doing a quote-unquote spoof, right? Um, yeah. Like, it's, it's done really, really well, and you know what you're in for, and then you meet the other characters, and you're like, oh, my God, this, this shit's going to be crazier than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> and here's and here's something that's interesting. It's like not only is he satirizing Hitchcock within a certain respect, he's he's also it's Mel Brooks's uh, uh, take on uh, psychology and psychiatric mm-hmm. uh, practice of the era. Which I mean, there's some of it that doesn't hold up today. There are jokes in this film that they don't age well, not because they're offensive. They don't age well because. There's uh, they, it's just like the joke has been so played out that nobody really thinks of it that much anymore. But I would argue this is the last bastion of some of those jokes being able to be pulled off. We'll get to some of them, but the they pull up to the institute. Um, he first meets Doctor uh, Wentworth, Philip Wentworth, 
played by Dick Van Patten. Beautiful uh, regular in the Mel Brooks stable. Obviously, he plays King Roland in Spaceballs. <laughs> um, and uh, he does a Dick Patton does a great job at uh, playing a sort of nervous stra- slash straight man to the comedy. Um, and he, he 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 very much he doesn't represent a specific Hitchcock character so much as he was, he represents the victim that we're going to see down the line, like somebody who's going to be the victim of a violent death. Yeah. Um, yep. And then he, but Dr. Wentworth is alluding, is about to reveal to uh, Dr. Thorndike that uh, to Richard Thorndike that there's uh, things, suspicious things going on at the Institute before he hears Wentworth. <laughs> ah, and then you hear the lovely, lovely voice of, Harvey Corman. Oh man, the best. One of the one of the only uh live shows that I've ever been to for comedy that hasn't been for friends and such was I got to see Tim Conway and Harvey Corman live on stage doing bits from Carol Burnett uh before Corman passed away. And it he was as amazing on stage then as he was back in the 70s. It was mar- remarkable. It's pretty but, that's pretty um, awesome. Yeah, dude, it's one of the strongest memories I have is like one of the most positive things I ever saw at the Buell Theater, hands down. But anyway, he is Dr. Charles Montague. <laughs> um, and he, again, is not specifically a Hitchcock character, but we're going to find out that he has a lot <laughs> in common with uh, Norman Bates here uh, and also some other characters in Hitchcock's stable, like in Notorious, where they are very, very devoted to to a domineering woman and specifically <laughs> and, and, and specifically uh the uh uh the, the amount of uh, uh patience one would have to have with that but uh he tells him he he was in charge of the institute until he showed up and then in walks in ahem it's Cloris Leachman the lovely Cloris oh, Leachman nurse two, le- th- two legends playing the villains two legends um, Leachman actually talks about in the behind the scenes on this film how she really overdid, by overdid it by underselling the makeup. She like really pasted on white white base. <laughs> she uh, allowed her mustache to grow. Uh, she there's certain moments where she has lipstick on where she intentionally leaves the lipstick on the teeth where it oh. would have smeared, <laughs> and uh, she plays Nurse Diesel who is. A conglomeration of a lot of Hitchcock villainesses, but if we're going off of performance, I think her obvious homage is obviously Mrs. Danvers and Rebecca. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very uh, stern performance that she's giving to the comedic effect that it is, which is very much Judith Anderson and Rebecca. She also s- represents certain elements of the domineering mother characters. In, just a um, little bit. Yeah, just a little just bit. A little you'll, bit. You'll, you'll see. <laughs> Um, but she uh, she says, um, uh, you know, like, welcome to the Institute. I'm sure you'll want to get rested before you settled. Uh, dinner is promptly at eight. Those who are tardy do not get fruit cup. <laughs> and uh, that's important because it comes back to play here in a minute. Um, but anyway, um, time passes. They get um, uh, uh, we, we cut to this shot from outside looking into the dining room it's pushing in pushing in pushing in pushing in and then the glass on the door breaks because the camera has gone too far it it shatters (laughs) yeah it shatters and now this is an homage to hitchcock's many many different attempts to perfect this um where i mean he does perfect it but like there are 
there's an evolution to it where Hitchcock pushes the camera through the surface of something in order to get you into the scene. The obvious one is that psycho starting from the air in that helicopter shot and then going into the motel room or the hotel room because it's the hotel, not the motel. Um, and then other and other things. He does this in Under Capricorn mm-hmm. too, and I think Under Capricorn's a little bit more slick. Um, but this one, something that's pointed out in the special features of this film and I, I completely agree with it is, is that the camera gets laughs in this movie. Oh, the so camera good. itself gets laughs in this movie. And this is, again, he's satirizing Hitchcockian technique. Mm-hmm. That's what he's, like, pointing attention to. Is like, it's kind of ridiculous that you would have this shot pushing in as far as it was. Wouldn't you hear glass break? And then that's what he yeah. hits, hits upon. Um, but then we get this dining room scene where we get a lot of other exposition about, like, you know, will you be attending the uh, psychiatrics convention? Um, what yeah. was Dr. Ashley wanting to improve upon uh, before his untimely demise? And, you know, it's a lot Nurse of Diesel says, yeah, he goes, the drapes, <laughs> the drapes. <laughs> it's, it's a beautiful. Anytime she says something in this movie or does something, it is fucking beautiful. Oh, yeah, she steals it. Um, she steals the scene. She she steals virtually every moment. Yeah. Um, actually, and, and you know, Dr. Montague is late. Of course she rings a bell before Montague enters the scene. His fruit cup is taken away. Oh, yeah. Montague comes in in these fucking, this beautiful dress shirt, dress shirt and suit with wingtip shoes. He's so excited. He's ready for his fruit cup. He goes in to eat it to realize it's not there. It's a beautiful moment by Corman. He looks at his clock. I'm only six, six seconds late. You're so strict. And you get a, uh, for your first impression of the, uh, uh, of their relationship oh, yeah. that comes to bear down the line. Their, their dynamic uh, is like amazing in this movie. It is phenomenal, and and then it kind of passes a little bit. It's established within this that the uh, the 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 uh, the institute is very very well off to the point where they can afford very nice food and very nice cigars. And you'd think this is an illogical point, but actually, it's kind of the point of the villain's plot. Um, and, uh, the, uh, you know, Brooks asks, what's the patient's rate of recovery here? (laughs) I'll have you in a moment for you. Corman pulls out a calculator, thinks for a second, goes back to the calculator and goes once in a blue moon. (laughs) Yep. And then this beautiful moment where Leachman goes like, Dr. Thorndike, you have to understand here that we are, that the rate of recovery in the classroom is much higher than it is in real life. We are dealing with dangerous people. You understand? Very sick people. And she stabs a fork onto the clothing, of, onto the uh, cuff of fucking Corman. It's, yeah. It's, it's... beautiful. Um, and then they do a toast. I think I, this might be before him, but they do a toast um, where somebody gets up and goes, gentlemen. And then uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Leachman just hits the table <laughs> and he goes, and Nurse Diesel. <laughs> like the line and Nurse Diesel doesn't make you laugh. Her hitting it, <laughs> her hitting oh, yeah. the table is is the joke like and that is i think like character in a nutshell and it is mel brooks i think sort of like you know shining a spotlight to like women not getting their fair attention in film right where it's like she's immediately overlooked even though she's right there yeah and now it's not hard to find attention being paid to with women in hitchcock's films in fact there's a lot of strong women characters as we discussed um but it's like it's one of those things where it's just like this is an era now where you're just like you have to pay attention to the late. Like she's calling out proper behavior is what mm-hmm. she's doing. Cause like, Absolutely. Um, but but then um, we get Mel, uh, Doctor Thorndike is you know getting ready for bed. He and Brophy hear a sound, 
and they go to <laughs> investigate it and they go up to Nurse Diesel's room. She comes out in a bathrobe and she goes like, it's the TV. I'm sorry it disturbed you. And, you know, like she goes back into her room and, you know, Mel's like, yeah, you could have fooled me. I didn't think it was the TV. Ron's like, yeah, the TV, the TV. It's part of the TV. <laughs> Brophy, that was not the TV. <laughs> um, and the reveal is wonderful as to what it really oh, was. Yeah. Oh yeah, the reveal of uh, so so Nurse Diesel goes back into her room. She opens up her bathrobe and it reveals that she's in a dominatrix esque outfit. Like it makes it look like she's supposed to be a cop. And she opens up her closet and fucking Doctor Montague is like bound up, oh, yeah. <laughs> um, with handcuffed to the to the bar that uh the where you hang your clothes. And he goes like, well, "Who was it? It's Thorndike. You're making too much noise. I can't help it. You're being too, too rough, rough tonight. Too rough. Oh, get off! <laughs> oh, get off it! I know what you crave. You crave bondage and discipline. Too much bondage. Not enough discipline. <laughs> and then she starts spanking him, and he's yeah. He's now he's like a pig in shit. He's loving it. Yeah. So again, Montague, while not being a specific Hitchcock character, is playing into the domineer a woman domineering situation, and they're doing it to the literal degree. But Mel said on this specific shot, there's two things to it. Number one is, is that he let the camera roll on this one because they just improv like crazy, both of them. So he just said, just let it roll. It's one of those instances where Mel is allowing improv in a way that Hitchcock would not. Well, that's why he's so good. He understood that he had like, you know, so like, what is it, lightning in a bottle, right? He's like, let it go. Yeah, just let let this go. There was an additional scene where the uh, S&M and the, uh, the bondage play went over the top. There are production stills of it where she comes out in this fucking full-on spandex suit. And apparently uh, Mel said in German, too much, too much. <laughs> <laughs> like, and that's where they cut the scene. I wish we had the scene in the deleted scenes along with anything else that was on the cutting room floor that's not available on a Blu-ray. I don't know if it exists. That's the problem. It may not exist anymore. Um, but anyway, um, uh, the, that scene ends. Uh, and, uh, but, and actually before all this, we, I, I complete, I just realized we completely overlooked um, a very important character in the movie. Little, little as, old man. As, but yes, so as as Richard Thorndike, before the dinner, Richard Thorndike is setting up his office, and he gets a call from this little uh, little German-esque doctor. Um, he goes, Richard, my boy, Professor Little Old Man, <laughs> Little Old Man, Little Old Man. Ah, everybody gets it wrong. And so d- Professor Little Old Man is, uh, Little Old Man, is very much, the uh, parody or a, a takeoff of the L, uh, the mentor psychiatrist mm-hmm. in Spellbound, um, and uh, what this is Howie Morris. He is a staple in Mel Brooks um, in, in Mel Brooks's uh, canon, and uh, in in this film he is he gets some of my favorite moments in the movie just from delivery alone. Um. But through this scene, we find out that uh, uh, Dr. Thorndike suffers from high anxiety. <laughs> high anxiety, by the way, is not a term that existed until Mel Brooks made it up. <laughs> and now every and now people use it as a term. Like Time Magazine used it as a term in regards to the Wall Street and economic uh, uh, struggles that were going on in the 80s. 
and Mel Brooks points out, like, nobody had used that term until I invented it. And I'm like, I agree with you because I had never heard the term high anxiety until I saw your movie. So clearly, if anybody's using it, it's only because of you. Um, but so anyway, they uh, they find out he ha- we find out he has high anxiety because um, ha- little Olman asks him, have you looked at the view from your <laughs> room? He goes like, ah, I've been meaning to. Mel gives a great performance in this movie, by the way, because he is very much playing a combination of a Cary Grant and a James Stewart character in a Hitchcock movie. He is very much blending the two. Yeah. One minute he can be charming, the other minute he could be Stewart nervous. Um, and yeah, very, very Cary Grant. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Has a lot of Grant in him. Uh, when he gets to the Stewart moments, it's when he's ever frantic or like running away. But like. In the in in that scene, he takes him out to the balcony um, where you can see the better uh, better see the view. He looks down, much like Stuart and Vertigo, and then suddenly you see Mel Brooks spinning in a circle. Ah, ah. <laughs> like that's the poster for High Anxiety mm-hmm. that you see with Mel and is like just spinning down. They reveal that he has high anxiety, and he's high just like it must anxiety. Be. <laughs> yeah, and he's like, he's got, he's like, well, it just maybe nerves, you know, and, and tension, and you know, getting adjusted to a new place. And little Omen goes bullshit. Yeah, <laughs> like, <it's> so good. <laughs> and they agree to work on uh, his high anxiety. Um, and uh, uh, so anyway, uh, the reason that I bring it to this is so. As we move away from that, uh, from the scene of uh, Montague and Diesel's uh, nightly activities, um, uh, uh, Doctor Thorndike is is at his job and uh, looking over patient files, and Doctor Montague comes in and they have a little bit of banter back and forth about how the patient, uh, the the rate of recovery is so so low and. Uh, how could it possibly be that any of these people haven't um, recovered based on their files? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, these, you know, these case files are sketchy. They hardly paint a portrait of the, of the true uh, individual. Um, he asks to bring one of the uh, patients in a uh, one Zachary Cartwright, uh, who his malady is that he, be- he was getting sharp pains in his neck and was uh, dreaming that he had seen werewolves. Oh, so he brings the so patient good. in. Ron Clark plays Zachary Cartwright. And the reason why Ron Clark was asked to play this role is because in order to uh, make it be- make Thorndike believe that the patients are still deranged, even though they might have looked like they recovered, um, the uh, Montague um, uh, d- does a little bit of a, uh, sta- uh, uh, a paperclip hornet with a rubber band to create the pain for Zachary Cartwright again. And when when the pain hits him, Ron Clark gives this yell that is so fucking loud. Now, yeah. <laughs> like that is just, And he does explain like, to Mel he explains to Brooks's character that he hasn't had these feelings in a while. He hasn't had this pain. He feels he good. He doesn't see the werewolf. And then the second that like uh what Mont, Mont, uh, Mont, Montague um starts yeah. to see this going, you know, in the wrong direction for his character. He decides to take some, you know, matters into his own hands. Yep. And then so as he's getting the pain and whatnot, he keeps hitting him in the neck and then takes out a pair of false teeth and starts pretending to be a werewolf, which like it's it's almost like you're watching the outside view of when a character is spinning and thinks they see something, whether it's Hitchcock or any other genre. And you you think you're seeing something that's not actually there. It's the outside perspective of people fucking with them. <laughs> like, Dude, this is this scene. 
I still cry every time I watch this scene. That's how funny I think it is. It's the same. It's so. It's just like uh, the garage destruction in uh, it's a mad, 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 mad world. Like that same <laughs> level to me, because like Corman just dials it up and like seamlessly goes in between like being like, oh well, you know, take it easy, calm down, calm down. To like the second that Brooks turns his back, he's back to being the. And he's just turning into a werewolf, and Ron Clark's character is just losing his mind. Yeah, no, it's 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 beautiful. It's it's oh. such a wonderful scene. Like the the energy it's in it is unbelievable. remarkable. Yeah. Now, though, so Cartwright leaves, and then they uh, they reveal that like uh, th- th- there's been a flash, like a reflector flashing light at um, uh, Thorndike's window. They look up, and Montague's like, "Well, that's Brisbane's room." And he goes, "Arthur Brisbane, the industrialist." And like, "Yeah, he came here 18 months it's ago." Like, and, we're setting this um, up now. Yeah. Yeah, and Montague claims, "Well, he's a hopeless case." Now we are setting up essentially through setup that. The patients at um, this institute are a lot of very rich people who are kept here intentionally um, so that they can squeeze money out of them. Mm-hmm. And so that's our bad guy plot, essentially. So um, uh, Brooks uh, demands to see Brisbane after lunch. Um, we go back to uh, little, little Ullman, and he's doing a session <laughs> with um, – with Thorndike on high on his high anxiety and he puts him in a trance in the trance he asks him to fight it fight it and then Brooks just starts doing a boxing routine with little Ullman which you know it might be stretching it but this might be a reference to the ring which is a Hitchcock move a silent Hitchcock movie which is a boxing movie um and uh so like we get this boxing scene and Every uh, him and little Ullman are going at it. Montague comes in and he's dressed and he's like, "Stop it, boy! Stop it!" He takes off his jacket to reveal basically a referee's outfit, oh, and he, he just falls. I like how falls he falls right in line with it. It's so good. Falls right in line. Come on, boys! They came to see a fight, not a dance. <laughs> yeah, it's so good. <laughs> and again, it's just Corman um, coming in and just like crushing. Yeah, and uh, then we get uh, the then Montague finds out that. Uh, Brooks has high anxiety and like little old <laughs> goes, well, you mustn't tell anybody like, sir, you forget that I am a professional at this institute and I take that sensitivity with the utmost. And then he walks out and you just hear, hey, everybody, guess who has high anxiety? Oh, <laughs> like, he's just like, he's such an asshole move. <laughs> it yep, is it's so it's a beautiful asshole move. Um, but anyway, um, they go then to see Arthur Brisbane. Um, they, uh, meet up with the guy who, uh, has the half mustache, um, <laughs> at Norton played by Lee Delano. Um, and he, you know, has a, has half a mustache because one of the patients supposedly like ripped, ripped, the, ripped half the mustache off. And he's like, that must've been painful. You'll never know. And then they go past one of the doors and <laughs> one of the patients goes like, Hey Norton lost something. <laughs> and you see him have a half mustache. Yeah. He's sporting the half mustache that he stole from it's, the poor guy. <laughs> It gives me a laugh every time I see it. And then they, so they go into what's supposed to be Arthur Brisbane's room and you see, um, uh, uh, Charlie Callis as it, it basically in a, in a onesie suit and he's sleeping in a dog bed. It's supposed that this is Arthur Brisbane and that Arthur Brisbane thinks he's a dog. This is one of the, no, he's, he's a cocker spaniel. <laughs> yeah. Cocker spaniel. Yeah, he is a cocker um, and spaniel. That, and it's, a, it's a, and it's oh. important for a reason um, because I, but now this is one of those jokes where I'm like, I don't know how well this works in terms of like 
people being so crazy they think they're an animal. Um, I think that's very much an antiquated joke. However, I do love this execution of this joke because Mel Brooks is watching it and he's like, remarkable, simply remarkable. And the camera is meticulous as such that he's going into a spiel about it. We're not really seeing what the actor as the dog is doing in a certain moment. And then the it knows to cut right away to watch Charlie Callis humping Mel Brooks's leg. <laughs> <laughs> this beautiful like what are you fucking crazy like well yeah like, um, it's absolutely bonkers and yeah. yeah like wow like yes you're thinking that people are so crazy they think that their dogs being you know used as a joke isn't like the best thing to do but again i think brooks gets away with it because he set this whole thing up as these are flawed people across the board like this institution is essentially just milking people out of money so it's like this yes. is not going to be like a perfectly functioning world. So it's like, it, this is going to be an insane version. And they're going to be treating yeah. it, not in a way of like a real caretaker would or a real hospital would. It's like, if Corman is the guy that's running this show, what do you think is going to happen? <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Um, and, and both of these patient interactions do stem off of Spellbound a bit, um, specifically with um, the the... Mr. Garm's character in Spellbound, played by Norman Lloyd, you know, he's um, uh, he gets a full fleshed out scene with it. So you are kind of homaging and spoof and satirizing these interactions with patients. And you're you're taking instead of anything truly specific psychosis, you're taking the comedic interpretation of the era of what psychosis is and breaking it down into these two different um scenarios one being the Cartwright character and the other one being who is supposed to be Brisbane except he's not I'm just going to spoil that in advance um <laughs> anyway though yeah uh it uh <clears throat> within this Dr. Wentworth uh is cracking he can't take it anymore he wants to leave Leachman tells him he can't leave and then <laughs> and then we get this coverage of Wentworth going like but I'm telling you I'm going mad I'm going mad I feel like I'm caught in a web what I love about that shot is because so the lighting is such with a cookie cutter uh, lighting to suggest a spider's web mm -hmm. encapsulating him. The, the shot holds really well as a Hitchcockian shot up until the moment he says, I feel like I'm caught in a web. So he knew how to play that shot out to the most it could be utilized. Um, and it's it's a beautiful representation of dynamic lighting and expressionism that Hitchcock would put in his own films done for comedy. Yeah. This um, is, again, and well, like, going back to the idea that, like, you know, Brooks is, again, a master at doing this. Yeah, he's not homaging a specific lighting scheme. He's homaging expressionism itself in a way that makes sense for his comedy. Um, and then so Wentworth... Uh, is finally allowed to be released um, by Nurse Diesel and goes like, I know you won't tell anybody. I know you won't. And then we get that kind of Hitchcockian mm -hmm. transition from the eyes into the uh, into the, the headlights. Wentworth is driving. Uh, it's a rainy night, not unlike the rain in Psycho when, you know, Janet Lee is approaching the motel. Uh, and uh, he turns on his radio and it starts playing, If You Love Me, Baby, Tell Me Loud. The volume is so high that he can't escape it. You have this very much encapsulated Hitchcockian kind of death scene in a car. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Dr. Wentworth dies because his uh, he has exploded eardrums combined with a cerebral hemorrhage from listening to this music too long and too loud. Um, it cuts to 
Thorndike here, like mulling over the fact that this happened and wondering if he should go to the psychiatric convention. But of course, as we find out, uh, he, you know, the Montague and Diesel are like, no, you should go. You should go. He must go. He has to go. (laughs) Yep. He has to go. Um, and uh, Brophy gets one last shot of them before they leave. They don't want to take a picture, and then they suddenly pose as if though they've been ready this whole damn time. <laughs> and uh, and then they leave uh, for the um, uh, for the convention. There's a love again, lovely exchange between Montague and Diesel here about like come into my room tonight. I'm not, I, I I can't. I, I I can't. I'm too tired. I'll let you wear my underwear. I'll be there at nine. Yeah. <laughs> and. Uh, we get to San Francisco, um, your old stomping grounds, where um, uh, we are at outside of the Hyatt Regency. Mm-hmm. This hotel um, still stands. Yep. the The amount of attention to how Hitchcock did exteriors too is also here because this re- reveal of the hotel is very Hitchcockian. Uh, the bigger reveals come in more obvious homages, but this feels like again you're setting up the city. The city itself is sort of a character in itself. Um, we get this big banner for the psychiatric convention. Um, uh, uh, Thorndike yeah, checks it, in with Brophy. They are told that they will be on the 17th floor. Mel's like, "I that can't be. I specifically requested a uh, a low room, nothing above floor three, and uh, the." <laughs> The uh, uh, the the hotel clerk goes like, well, I understand that, but a Mr. McGuffin called and changed your room yeah. to the seventeenth floor. Now, kind of beautiful about this is that not only are you saying McGuffin out loud in this movie in a beautiful way, um, you are also alluding to the fact that the McGuffin of this film really is the same McGuffin as Vertigo, which is Mel Brooks's high anxiety is the McGuffin, mm-hmm. uh, just as Jimmy Stewart's Vertigo is the MacGuffin of the film. It means not, it means nothing to us, but means everything to the characters and how they will drive the plot, their, 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 uh, role in the plot forward or what will inhibit them. Like it's a, it's, it's that, it's that thing that matters to them, but doesn't really matter to us. Cause it's not the, f- the it's not the soul. It's it not o- what the it only matters is. to us because the characters treated with such high importance. Exactly. Like the high anxiety in this movie, much like the vertigo in vertigo doesn't fucking matter. Uh, like, but now the difference in, though is, is that this particular MacGuffin, it has a lot more importance than other MacGuffins in Hitchcock films, specifically in vertigo, because it is, uh, it, I think the high anxiety in this film is, uh, paid, uh, is paid more attention to than the vertigo in vertigo in a lot of respects. Uh, so he is kind of amplifying it. Um, but they get their they get their room assignment. They get the keys. Uh, in walks Dennis, um, the uh, Barry Levinson character. Um, uh, Thorndike as says like, um, "Can you get me a paper?" Um, uh, and he says, "Yeah, I'll go. I'll go get it here in just a second. Like, remember, it's very important." All right, all right, already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Downstairs, yeah. He asked him because he's, the, I think, the bell, the bell boy too. So he, yeah, yeah. he's the bell, he's the bell boy. Right? Yeah, and he's just like he asks, he asks him for the paper, and he's like, "Oh yeah, yeah, I'll get it for you. I'll get it for you. Yeah, yeah it's important." He, essentially, Barry Levin says, "Yeah, I get it. It's important." Yeah, yeah. He's like, "All right, all right, already." <laughs> um, they get into the elevator. And uh, that, by the way, that I don't know. You have you been inside the Regency Hyatt? I haven't. Okay, I want to know if those elevators are still looking like that because that's fucking just that's a beautiful fucking elevator. That atrium looks beautiful. Well, I, I um, think it. I um, I'm pretty sure that they kept it 
the inside pretty similar to how it was in the movie. Um, another pl- another place that's kind of like that is uh, the Bonaventure in L.A. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is like, again, like that same crazy atrium inside with like the four towers and the elevators going up the middle. It's like and- they making hotels like that now. I mean, I don't know if they make them like that anymore. I mean, yeah, this is like, and also the rooms are kind of extending out in like a pyramid kind of fashion. Like, like the floors themselves are extended out. It's really interesting architecture. And it also like, it's much like any Hitchcock location. It becomes a character in and of itself. Like there's certain elements of it. Yeah. And they go up the elevator, you know, and Barry Levinson says like, all right, we're on the top floor, top of the building. You can't get any higher. We get it. We're very high. <laughs> yeah. Meanwhile, Brooks is like freaking out. Yeah. And uh, they get into the room. Uh, guy gives Brophy his key for the room. Uh, and by the way, the reason we're going bit by bit on this particular point of the plot is because it's a beautiful homage to Psycho coming up. Um, you know, he gets into the room. Uh, Brooks uh, at, is uh, Dennis is like, will there be anything else? And Thorndike's like, yes, my paper. Where is my paper? Oh, they didn't have any downstairs, and I didn't feel like going around the corner. It's such a hassle. He's like, but it's very important. All right, all right, I'll get it for you. Don't forget. All right, all right. What's so cr- important about a lousy, crummy newspaper? <laughs> yeah, Levinson he's... has this beautiful, high fucking voice. <laughs> like, and I can't even do it. It's so fucking high. <laughs> And they cut back to downstairs. The The hotel clerk goes, oh, Dennis, which I don't know if this is specifically a reference to Jack Benny's program where he would call out to his singer Dennis Day, but the delivery sounded very much like Jack going, oh, Dennis. So if there's a Jack Benny connection, it might be here. I don't I can't confirm it. Um, IMDb says it's a trivia tra- fact, but I find that specious because it's coming from IMDb. Um, so, but anyway, he says, Oh, Dennis, Richard Thorn, uh, Thorndike up in room, thir- room 12 specifically requested. I know get the newspaper, get the newspaper, get the stick, the newspaper. <laughs> and yeah, he's not, we thrilled get this at all. He's not thrilled, but we cut back to the shower in Thorndike's room, not just visually, <laughs> but acting wise. Brooks is recreating Janet Lee getting in that fucking shower. The only shots, there are a few shots missing, and, and Hitchcock pointed it out to Brooks in the screening, going like, hey, you had certain shots are missing here. We had this many rings on the curtain instead of this many that you have. And, you know, they're, they're small things. It doesn't really matter to Hitch. He's just pointing it out because he's like, well, I'm, I'm still the fucking master of suspense, and I can tell you shit. Um, but uh, the acting, the way he takes off the robe, to the way he gets inside, to the way he's washing himself, the only shot in this that isn't almost point for point of Hitchcock, there are two moments of it. One is after uh, what happens happens and the camera's supposed to spin instead of pan- instead it zooms out. Mm-hmm. The first one, though, is the shower head. The spigots in Psycho <laughs> are arranged to go around the camera. This one's going into the camera. So obviously <laughs> that's still a secret that hasn't been cracked in Hitchcock's um, legacy. But they do the shower scene. You see through the curtain a figure is coming up at Mel. The curtain opens. It's Barry Levinson with a newspaper in his hand like a knife going...
And yeah, he just him unloads. Saying, him saying, here's your paper is the vocal equivalent of the psycho music, mm-hmm. the, 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 the Bernard Herman cue. That's what's uh, scoring the scene. It's not Morris. Morris does the buildup. Barry Levinson is the score in that scene. <laughs> Here's your paper. Here's your paper. As he keeps going, it descends the same way the psycho theme does. Yeah. And then he leaves and goes, Help me now! Help me! Help me now! Oh, it's so good. It, then you it, get the drain you, and the ink. Yes, which which apparently Hitchcock was a big fan of that scene because he's just like, oh, that the ink going down. That's beautiful. Um, and it, it, pan, it zooms out on Mel Brooks' Uh, lying on the tub, uh, kind of the way Janet Lee lies in the um, lies on the ground after the shower, and he just goes. That kid gets no tip. Yeah, like, <laughs> and again, that's the perfect way of bringing it back because the rest of the scene, yeah. is so like technically well shot that like you forget that like I mean obviously you know it's a comedy because the setup right, but like to end it on that note was just it's I mean it's pretty fucking brilliant. I mean it's pretty good. It, it is it is an example of how you satirize the uh the the setup of that shot and that scene and the over editing by bringing in something as ridiculous as the paper mm-hmm. uh it, it's just it's you know i guess like you know we talked about the difference between spoof and satire and parody and whatnot i think you i think with mel you usually get everything in those definitions i would argue satirist but you can also see the spoof and the parody of it because it is there like it is point for point kind of mocking it but it's not mocking it it's lovingly homaging the situation uh he's just bringing his own thing to it um but he gets over this incident uh He's dressing up for the convention. The door knocks and he goes, it's not the bellboy, is it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which I think is a it's an undersold line that I think is really, really funny because after what we've just seen with Barry Levinson, who, by the way, deserves a supporting actor Oscar for that moment alone, in my opinion, because I give Oscars out for ridiculous shit. Um, and that is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life to this day. The first time I saw High Anxiety, the moment that made me laugh the loudest was Barry Levinson <laughs> screaming at the top of his lungs. Um, but uh, he answers the door and uh, Madeline Kahn as Victoria Brisbane comes in and goes, get away from the door. <gasps> oh, yeah. <sighs> that breathing. We're queuing in Madeline Kahn. She's the fucking goddess of comedy. Um, <clears throat> Victoria Brisbane reveals to him that she hasn't been able to see her father for 18 months. She thinks he's being held prisoner in the Institute. Um, and when she says that she's Victoria Brisbane, um, Mel Brooks goes like the Cocker's daughter. <laughs> <laughs> and because he thinks he's a Cocker Spaniel, which by the way, they are very bright, which is how um, the Cocker Spaniel was able to signal to um, <laughs> Mel. Um, but uh, anyway, though, it's revealed that, and you know, Mel has to go speak at this conference. So he's just like, look, why don't we get together at eight and talk about it over dinner? She says mm-hmm. dinner. Perfect. He goes to his conference at the Psychiatric Institute. Now, this is not a... This scene, if it's homaging anything within Hitchcock, um, which... Oh, wait. Before we do that, we'll talk about Victoria Brisbane a bit. She is obviously an homage to the cool, icy blonde yes. in, um, in Hitchcock films. Very much a combination of Grace Kelly, Kim Novak, 
Eva Marie Saint, all the blonde, all the Hitchcock blondes. What she's doing though is funny. Is like it's supposed to be a cool icy blonde. She's bringing a lot of warmth to the cool icy blonde. So it's like a melt, yeah, a melted icy blonde. Like it's it's so weird. Like it's like, there's so much warmth from Madeline Kahn that exudes naturally that she's like she can't entirely be a cold icy blonde. She is a determined no. character though. She is not relegated to no. She's not you know love interest. Yeah, right. And she's like, active. She, she sort of comes in like halfway through the story, which. Again, like yeah. good films, it's kind of like, you know, you build to like the midpoint and then like it sort of changes a little bit after that. And she really does. She brings it in, changes the tone a little bit while still working within like the same like, you know, um, same premise that we've been, you know, working in up until this point. But like she's just so good. She comes in and you immediately from like that first scene with her, you know that things aren't going to be the same from here yeah, on out. No, exactly. Things are things are going to be different. Um, and uh, <laughs> the... Uh, the key thing with within her characters is that she's also allowed to do this is the one thing she's allowed to do that goes beyond the Hitchcock realm. She is allowed to be much more um, abrasive than I think any Hitchcock blonde was able to other than maybe Grace Kelly. I think Grace Kelly's the like the 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 uh, the match point here. Because she is, she, she. We'll talk about some scenes she gets later where she is allowed to just go for the fences. Um, but they go to the psychiatric convention. They go. To, she. He goes to speak, sort of, kind of homaging the different speaker scenes that you would see uh, in early Hitchcock films, like the Thirty Nine Steps, when somebody goes, when when um uh, uh when we have uh, uh our lead in uh Thirty Nine Steps going up to, um. Uh, talk to the assembly hall. He's giving this speech on psychology and psychiatry. This isn't specifically homaging anything to Hitchcock in particular, but it is a funny Mel Brooks scene where a psychiatrist is trying to talk about uh, psychology within human sexuality. And then two Mm -hmm. kids are brought into the meeting. So he has to revert to childlike language, like PP and cocky duty. (laughs) Like it is a, it's a nice scene. It's, it's, it's one of those scenes where I, I'm not <laughs> yeah, reveling in the Hitchcock. I'm reveling in the the Mel Brooks of it. Like it is very much a Mel Mel Brooks kind of scene. The moment coming up too here is also sort of Mel Brooks, but it's also like mm-hmm. there's you could allude to like the mysterious things going on in the bars and Vertigo in this. But he and Victoria have a dinner. Mm-hmm. Yes. We also learn that um, his middle name is Harpo, which. Unlike our Roger O. Thornhill, which is supposed to be an, an acknowledgement to David O. Selznick, where the O meant nothing, it just was, it made it sound important. <laughs> yep. We actually get a middle name for the character, which is Harpo, because his mother liked the Marx Brothers movies. And I was like, that's lovely. I like that. That's That touches my heart. I don't know if it touches anybody else's heart, but it does mine. And um, <laughs> the guy at the piano is like, okay, this is the moment where I take a fucking break. <laughs> And you all get to sing, and uh, I get to mock you because, like that, <laughs> it's. Uh, but he he asks anybody if they can sing, and, and uh, of course, and he goes up to Richard and he's like, "How about you, sir?" And uh, he's just like, "No, I don't sing. I don't sing, not professionally anyway." And he goes, "You know," and so he agrees to get up and sing. He, and he goes to the guy at the piano. And he goes, "Do you know high anxiety?" Um, sure. B flat, okay. The key. Oh, the key. Yes, yes. Right. Okay. <laughs> and then he goes into high anxiety. This is a song that Brooks wrote out, then recorded, and then we got this beautiful spot. It's very much Sinatra-esque mixed in the Catskills kind of thing where you've got, 
you know, a guy singing in a lounge and then, you know, interacting with the audience. But this is a beautiful musical number. Um, I love this song, like not ironically, not from a realm of just comedy. I genuinely love this song as a song. You just love it. Um, I think it is a lovely, I did a lovely melody. Um, it's a song that I listen to constantly and I, I know it word for word. I know the motion of it, the way you deliver it. Word like it's, for word. It's the Mel Brooks. You might, you might have to sing it for the, me. Hi, <laughs> Ah, high anxiety whenever you're near. High anxiety, it's you that I fear. <laughs> I, I'm not going to do the rest of it. Yeah, that's pretty I good. That's pretty good. Singer, I'm going to get a clap going do, for I, you over I, here. I do love. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I, I, You know, the line that I love at the end is, and remember, folks, be good to your parents. They've been good to yeah, you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's just him doing that's such a fucking Sinatra bit. And he's the only one who could do it because only Mel could do Sinatra like that. Like it, it, when you're imitating Sinatra, it's not necessarily his voice. It's the way he performed a song. That's very true. Um, you know, I know Sinatra gets overplayed in, in pop culture, but the truth was there's a reason for that. He was a genius at what he did. Um, but so anyway, we get the song. There's massive applause. You know, my heart, my heart rate jacks into a beautiful sense of like, ah, this, that was the perfect thing. And then they go back and sit down and he goes back to sit down and they flirt a little bit. They get more intimate with each other. And, um, they, she goes like, I have to go powder my nose. She drops her purse. A picture falls out and we get our, we get a bit of a Hitchcockian twist where he's just like, this is not the man I met at the Institute because there's a picture of her father, but it's not of the cocker. Yeah. It's of Albert Whitlock. Um, it's a whole like, uh, dun, dun, and, uh, it's like, oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 very much uh, that kind of moment. Um, and uh, you know, and, and uh, amidst this, it's revealed that uh, Diesel and Montague have sent out a killer because we get this beautiful push-in shot of Rudy DeLuca as the killer who is a brace face. He's got mm-hmm. like t- braces on his teeth, which Rudy DeLuca did go to a dentist, uh, an orthodontist to get braces installed on his teeth for it. And the story is he goes in there and there's a kid also getting fitted for braces. He's like, you need braces too. And he goes, yeah, but it's different. I'm for a movie kid. Fucking get out of my way. <laughs> it just, just strikes the child. Um, <laughs> just not... oh, now, terrifying. now if, if I can do any impression to uh, uh to a good degree, not by vocal intonation, but by delivery. I'm gonna do Rudy DeLuca right now. You want me to kill him? Yeah, I just it would be really good, but I, I'd love to kill him. I mean, I I'll let him go, or I'll kill anybody you want me to kill. But I really want to kill him. I really want to. It's just Rudy DeLuca is fucking brilliant Dude, you, in that I mean, performance. That was, that, like it is. That's a great I, scene. It, it is. And but I mean, you're you love it, voices, man. You love doing impressions. <laughs> I, I do. I, I mean, I, I can't get enough of it. But he in particular, he is very much. So the braces are meant to emphasize like it's like it's it's sort of a Bond homage as well. But his enthusiasm for killing, I would tribute directly to um, uh, Robert Walker in Strangers on a Train. That enthusiasm for that idea of murder and killing and even a little bit of Brandon in rope in terms of like how Mm -hmm. these guys are fascinated with murder or obsessed with murder. Like this is, 
a conglomeration character who also has a bit of bond in him because of the teeth thing. Um, yeah, very, very Bond-esque. Yeah, and then within this scene, um, uh, within all the revelations with Whitlock, we get another Hitchcock homage that you might not fully understand what the homage is other than, oh, it's a Hitchcockian angle. There's a shot underneath the glass table. We're back at the Institute, and Nurse Diesel and Montague are talking over the fact that Thorndike knows that Brisbane is not... Uh, the Brisbane that he met. And so this shot underneath the glass table, you see them drinking tea, mm-hmm. you know, uh, eating from different plates and whatnot. The shot is an homage primarily to the lodger um, where there's a shot in the lodger where uh, the people who run the boarding house are looking up and through, through glass, they imagine the what the lodger himself is doing. The lodger is suspected to be the killer in that movie. And there's a shot from down low looking up on glass of um, Ivor, um, Ivor Novello pacing back and forth in his room, which is a very – it's, it's a one of the shot. most innovative things in silent cinema. It's a great shot. So This good. shot – is specifically designed to interrupt the visual element mm-hmm. and interrupt the visual focal point. <laughs> it is a beautiful moment where every chance the camera is moving to get the important parts of the plot, they are putting like a plate down or a saucer cup down, and they finally end it with her going, finish your strudel, yeah. <laughs> and they just put a tray over it. <laughs> so again, he's not, he's, he's not disrespecting it. He's pointing out how silly it is to have a shot like that when you could just show the shot itself. So he's interrupting it the way it would naturally be interrupted if you were to do this shot from a table. Um, So we get the twist that comes in there is like, so it's the next, it's the next day Thorndike realizes he has to leave. Mm -hmm. They're about to check out Um, Someone who now Thorndike, it would appear, comes up to a psychi- a fellow psychiatrist in the lobby of the atrium of the riot, uh, the uh, the Regency Hyatt, and shoots this guy. And <clears throat> I will say that this shooting sequence, very Hitchcockian, very like like sh- specific frames to indicate uh, the where the bullet's mm-hmm. going. He actually gets a headshot in. Yeah, it's not played for comedy. It's no. played for true suspense. Like, holy shit, this guy just came out and shot this guy in the middle of a lobby. Yeah, and it's it, it's pretty serious. Yeah, it's it's very serious. <laughs> it's not it's not meant for humor at all. It actually sets up an important dramatic point because this guy, this guy who looks like Thorndike, you know, waits by the elevator. Thorndike himself comes out. <laughs> And Mel does an, a Rudy DeLuca impression. Yep. <laughs> Going like, here's a little present. Yeah. <laughs> I like listening so to good. Mel Brooks impersonate Rudy DeLuca. <laughs> that is that is like Mel Blank having to do Daffy Duck impersonating Bugs Bunny, which is something that he could do and did do multiple times. This is like a comedian doing another comedian. Hands him the gun, pulls off a mask to reveal that he is uh, braces the killer and uh, uh, Thorndike comes out into the lobby with the gun. This is where you mix suspense with comedy here because the suspense of people like he's got the gun and they're playing up. He's playing up the anxiety Mm -hmm. of the situation, similar to how Cary Grant plays up the suspense of the situation in the UN in North by Northwest. It's pretty, it's pretty similar. Yeah. So he escapes though. 
Um, of course. And uh, <laughs> of he, course. And he uh, goes. Uh, Brophy, Brophy, by the way, is like has taken a photograph of the killing and goes, "Why did you do it, Doc? Why yeah, why'd did you, you do, do it?" it? Um, <laughs> His heart's broken. Yeah, but poor, oh, poor Ron Carey. Uh, he's uh, Ron Carey's wonderful in this role. He does a really good Jimmy Olsen, Golly Wish performance in this movie. It's it's pretty remarkable. Um, uh, and uh, uh, so now he. Uh, he goes to um, a phone booth in the park and calls up Victoria and tells him to meet him, um, it, it, meet him in the park later. He sits in the park bench. There's a jungle gym right behind him. And one by one, some pigeons start getting onto the jungle gym. And the scene is played for comedy, obviously, but it is also, you will notice there's no score in this scene, much <laughs> like there's no score in the birds. Yeah. And the suspense is played out to its fullest effect until, as more birds amass, you cut to an angle of Mel and a bird has shit on him. Dude, this is scarier than birds. Like, a flock of pigeons (laughs) shitting on me is way more horrifying (laughs) than... What happens in, I mean, and, this is, it's disgusting. Do you, know you know how much disease, how many diseases are in bird shit? It's out of control. Oh, dude. Oh, dude. No, no. And it's pigeons specifically, too. Oh, pigeons. So if this Gross. is pigeons in any big city. Trash birds. Yeah, they're the rats of the They're trash air. birds. They're rats with wings. Yeah, the, uh, they say that bats are rats with wings. Yeah. Pigeons are pretty goddamn disgusting. Yeah. No, it's, it's, um, it's, it's redonkulous. And he finds shelter in a shed, but then much like the scene where Tippy Hedren is trapped in the attic uh, in the birds. All the birds have found a perch that's above because it's a sunroof and they just unload on him. Oh. <laughs> he goes to a cleaners and all the patrons walk out. It's a scene that like, you know, my toilet humor for me or shit humor for me is um, a case by case basis. This is one where I still giggle to this day. Because it's because it's played like the sound is not there's no sound apart from the sounds that are essential. Much like Hitchcock, you turn down the sound only to what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, because he was a believer in pure cinema, where you you try to tell the story in a silent manner with as little dialogue or sound as possible. Let the visual visual speak for itself. Um, so yeah, we get that he meets Victoria in the park. She gets out of her car that has this ridiculous pattern around it and then she comes out in a suit with that same ridiculous pattern um and she con's great in this because she was like this is so crazy like first of all i see you kill a man except it's not you and i'm like this is so much i mean how much could a girl take like her delivery is beautiful as always she uh they they have kind of like their own little meeting like vertigo-esque meeting in the park where they're going over what's going on or you know, trying to figure the thing out. Bro, it, it's, he realizes that because his picture has been in the paper, he can see that, uh, he is clearly on the elevator. Yeah. Brophy like cracks the case. Yeah. So <laughs> Victoria calls Brophy and he goes, yeah, you're right. They could, there is somebody in the elevator, but I've got to be sure I've got to blow up this negative. <laughs> and <laughs> he blows it up to ridiculous heights. <laughs> oh. It's beautiful. And he's like, that is the doctor. And he, as he, uh, as he sees th- that it's Thorndike in the elevator, 
Uh, Nurse Diesel, Montague, and Norton have caught him. He goes like, unfortunately, nobody will be able to see it. They take the negative from him. And then Diesel goes, you fool. Don't you realize that picture's been in the paper everywhere? Like, anybody could have se- can see it now. And Montague gives my one of my favorite deliveries in the film is, he goes like, okay, I know what we'll do. We'll buy every newspaper. <laughs> yeah. in, every newspaper. We're going to need $10,000 worth of change. And then we're going to need a truck. A big truck. <laughs> I mean, I think it was a he great idea. This, uh, Super solid. He gives this... He gives this Gail Gordon delivery on a big truck, and I just fucking love it. And then he just realizes that the idea is stupid. Uh, and this is when Nurse Diesel gives Brace's permission to kill Thorndike, and he goes, "Oh, thank you so much. I really, I really love it." <laughs> like, He's just, so happy. He's like, "Yes, Rudy DeLuca, my time, Rudy DeLuca, fucking." beautiful and now and brophy had told victoria to, uh, that he'll call back in an hour um so meanwhile um so now now that braces has permission to kill we get an exterior shot of the uh, of the of the bridge in san francisco um very much vertigo very much vertigo um but there's a phone booth next to it inexplicably so again we're also going to get a bird's homage in here um uh mel or richard goes in to call victoria to find out if she's heard anything as he starts the call braces comes up from behind the phone booth and punches through it much like the birds hitting the uh, glass in the phone booth in the birds and then starts strangling mel brooks from behind with the phone cord um and at this point victoria has answered the phone call and all he's she's hearing is uh richard thorndike moaning so, and groaning yeah. and uh like and strangling being strangled and rudy deluca with his <laughs> and he's like all right i know all the other girls are turned on by these kinky sort of phone calls but i am not oh. going to fall for it mister and then she starts falling for it, going like what uh what are you wearing yeah, I think she buys into <laughs> and it the, the, the sound immediately and she the sound ke- the sound keeps going yeah. And then, like, eventually, you know, Brooks gets the upper hand and um, yes. tells he, her. He oh, pulls oh, him back me. and stabs him through the glass. <laughs> yep. Richard, Richard, Richard! I, I knew, knew it was you, you the yeah. whole time. <laughs> it's so good. <laughs> I was just playing along. He sta- By the way, he gets the upper hand on him by pulling Rudy DeLuca through uh, the shard of glass that's remaining on the phone booth. Sheer, sheer luck. Sheer luck. Yeah, yeah. Fun fact about that glass, though. That glass is candy glass, which mm-hmm. in the industry, when you're going to break glass and whatnot, you don't use real glass. You use a candy kind of glass. Um, in the t- in, in a take prior, when um, Rudy DeLuca punched through the candy glass, shards of that candy glass got stuck in Mel Brooks's neck. <laughs> <laughs> so that's not it, it, candy glass is still a form of glass so it's still yeah, a shard it's melted down sugar and when that cools yeah yeah and you when you, you take and when you look at it on the blu-ray you can see the you can see in the blu-ray the um uh the 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 uh uh bend and the kind of wave in the glass itself so it's like one of those things that hd has unfortunately kind of ruined the illusion of but but not so much that you don't understand it's still glass um, but anyway, yeah, I actually, before we wrap up that moment, Madeline Kahn, uh, when she's still in the middle of, <coughs> um, uh, getting into the mode of this kinky phone call, she goes like, what are you wearing? She thinks she's, she thinks he says jeans and she goes, jeans, but they're tight. <laughs> 
her delivery on it is funny as shit. And then when you finally hear her him get stabbed, she goes, "Oh, you are an animal." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's completely all about this now. Yeah, and then so, but anyway, they go into their spiel after it's been revealed that it's actually Thorndike. Um, and uh, she says that, well, uh, Brophy never called back. He said he found the neg, like he needed to blow up the negative that it might be you, but he needed to figure it out. And then they haven't heard anything. Um, and so uh, they decide to go back to the Institute. They've got to go back to confront this. Um, we get some, actually some exterior shots outside of the Institute that homage a lot of how Hitchcock worked with light and shadow in his own way and like sneaking around a, uh, the perimeter of an area. Um, there feels like a lot of like visual homage to just like these, the, the, some of the uh, stuff in Spellbound, obviously, but also I got a little bit of Under Capricorn in terms of the exteriors of Under Capricorn, but I doubt under Capricorn is even being remotely referenced in this movie. It just feels yeah, that just way to me. it's very Hitchcock. Um, like you, you see the frame, you're like, this is a Hitchcock film. Yeah, this is a Hitchcock film. This is a Hitchcock moment. They're moving through the shadows to sneak around. Um, they go over to Professor Lil Ullman's office. <laughs> they turn a chair, <laughs> much like Mother in Psycho, and it looks like he's been strangled. And he goes like, no, no, I'm not strangled. I just fell asleep. <laughs> Every, it scares the hell out of people. <laughs> um. And, uh, you know, they reveal that Brophy was taken to the violent ward of the North Wing. Um, and he, go, <laughs> he goes, like, apparently he had a mental breakdown. And Thorndike goes, Brophy's not smart enough to have a mental <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> so they go to the North Wing to investigate. Um, and at this point, it, it looks like Diesel and Montague are going to have to get rid of Bisbane. So the, so our, we get our climax, our vertigo climax coming up. First, they free Brophy from his cell in the North Wing. And yeah, we get yeah. this overhead shot that is very Hitchcockian, very Hitchcockian. Um, and uh, they actually play into it by when they reveal a... Um, uh, reveal the plot of what's going to happen to Brisbane. They're they're going to make him fall out the tower and make it look like an accident. And then the uh, Morris's score cues and they all look up at the ceiling. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's like oh here we go. Um, it's it's lovely. <laughs> and uh, so we get our uh, 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 vertigo ending coming up here. So uh, the 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 Psycho Neurotic Institute for the very very nervous. The exteriors were filmed at Mount Saint Mary's University in L.A. Um, and uh, when they were in San Francisco, um, uh, they not only did they shoot the Golden Gate Bridge, they shot parts of the Mission San Juan Batista Tower. Mm -hmm. So uh, this this tower has some combination effects of stuff going on in it, but it's sort of different. The tower itself is much more of a um, uh, a, a much more a Albert Whitlock scenario here. It's clearly much more of a a Whitlock miniature and or uh map map painting to blend in. But they go up uh the tower, and um, we actually get um as they're being pulled up the tower, you you see that one of the steps is broken. So they're going up. <laughs> Brophy tries to do it, and he goes, "I got it, I got it, I ain't got yeah, it." His his joke comes uh, back again. Uh, Thorn. Yeah, Thorndike had to has to climb up now. He's nervous. He's going around things. That uh, broken step that's established. Um, it's actually like I, I mean, like I think I can say this with confidence. It's an homage to Shadow of a Doubt, where in Shadow of a Doubt, uh, one of the ways Uncle Charlie uh, plans to get rid of Young Charlie is by 
fixing uh fudging with one of the steps um that go up to her room uh at the house and have it break so that she would fall down and break her neck so this one the we see the one that's clearly about to break he can feel it he tr- uh feel it so he tries to jump over <laughs> the broken one but falls through the sturdy one so he's hanging off of the ledge we get a bit of uh, vertigo in here with the fingers gl- clasping at something and it goes down to one finger and then you see another finger get the grip back up um and uh he's trying to he can't hold on because his high anxiety is getting the best of him and little Olman goes like think back i've been researching your case i know what causes the high anxiety now think back think back to a childhood you're a little baby and we get this flashback of mel brooks as a baby (laughs) here's here's the epiphany for his character this is the one thing where i think it's always too ridiculous is whenever men dress up as babies for that kind of scene like you can see it all over early cinema but it's a little much but i like it it's fine it's mel brooks acting like a baby he could do a funny baby sound um but yes you see that richard thorndike's parents are fighting that the kid is suffocating them and that they have no room to do anything in their lives and baby mel baby richard thorndike falls over uh from his um uh high chair and then it's revealed like that's what that's what it is it's not heights i'm afraid of it's parents (laughs) that's it (laughs) Yep. So he gets the confidence and to get back up, and he rushes up the tower. Uh, meanwhile, Norton is about to throw uh, Brisbane off the tower. He gets up there and uh, tosses. Um, uh, I, I believe, yeah, he he gets rid of Norton, pulls mm-hmm. Brisbane up, and he's about to bring him to. And as he's about to bring him to, in like a ghost um, dressed up in Wicked Witch of the West garb is Cloris Leachman going at them like like a demonic presence. And then she <laughs> falls off the tower. She's got a broom in her hand. She just uh, gets a hold of it and starts riding her broomstick downhill. <laughs> and you hear the wicked, like you hear that um, uh, Margaret Hamilton cackle as she just falls off she, the cliff and just she dies. bites it. Epically, it's a beautiful death for a, for a beautifully insane character. And then Montague comes out of the shadows and goes, "Fins, fins, I give up." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, he just gives I'll up. Be, I'll do anything for you if you. I'll, I'll do anything for you. I'll be anything for you. And if you and if you don't like what I've done, you could discipline me. I won't mind. <laughs> yeah, he's all about just saving his own ass at this point. Yeah. And uh, the uh, and then so the ending happens. Uh, Albert Whitlock gets his one line of dialogue. You saved me, but who are you? And Mel Brooks did say that uh, Albert Whitlock kind of over over delivered on that line. But he's like, like, yeah, but he's a matte painter. He's not an actor. What are you talking about? (laughs) Um, (laughs) And so, um, you know, it's revealed that, you know, I mean, obviously, and Thorndike's, you know, there and Victoria is like, this is the man I'm going to marry. We cut to a honeymoon chapel or a, a, a honeymoon suite. They go like Mrs. Victoria Harpo Bris, uh, Mrs. Victoria yeah. Harpo Brisbane Thorndike, Mr.'s Doctor. Yeah, he has to correct <laughs> Victoria <her>. Harpo. <laughs> and he's just like you know I you know they do the little banter of like Doctor I think there's a pro a pain here and he's like well let me examine it they're about to get it on and <laughs> so the camera starts pulling out and you start hearing in the background the camera operator and Mel going like, well, just, just pull out, pull out, pull out. You're going too you fast. End this going movie too right fast. Quick. And they, you're going too fast. And they burst through the wall, the, the wall <laughs> of this honeymoon suite. And he goes like, let's just keep going. Nobody, maybe nobody will notice again. 
we're the, not only is the camera getting laughs, not only are we satirizing Hitchcock's humor, we're also satirizing the idea that nobody would notice how impossible these shots are yeah. or how the physics don't work. So he's satirizing. He's 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 giving a loving nod to Hitch and satirizing it respectfully. And we pull out on the honeymoon suite. As we um, pull out on the honeymoon suite, we get. Um, it's not an obvious homage, but I noticed a visual similarity on. So in the lodger, we are brought in to Hitchcock's world of Hitchcockian cinema with flashing lights of a nightclub or of a of a building, um, like golden hair, curls, curls. This honeymoon suite flashes at the same neon intent as the lodger. Again, it might be a stretch. Well, isn't it? Doesn't it say honeymoon city? Yeah, Honeymoon yeah. City, yeah. So, like, <laughs> it's using the visual imagery of that flashing light to suggest what is inside the building uh, as a visual cue. As the music ends, we get the uh, suite of high anxiety playing as John Morris's music leads us out of the movie. This is the end of high anxiety. A wonderful oh, so film. so good. Um, Hitchcock, when he saw it, Hitchcock, when he saw it, again, as we said, he left the screening room not saying anything. He didn't laugh much through the movie, although he acknowledged a lot of it. Like, he would nod when a joke hit. Um, When he saw the uh, newspaper uh, ink going in the drain, he went beautiful to Mel. Um, And then when the bird scene happened, he laughed uncontrollably. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) This was... Hitchcock apparently had a scatological uh, sense of humor, so he laughed hysterically at this uh, at that scene. Um, the film opened. Um, it was uh, it was met with um, mixed but positive reviews. Um, if you're looking on Rotten Tomatoes right now, the um, based on the 29 reviews, it has a 72 percent, um, which that's too low. Um, it says uneven but hilarious when it hits. This spoof of Hitchcock movies is a minor classic in the Mel Brooks canon. Um, now Roger Ebert gave it two and a half stars and he said, one of the problems with Mel Brooks's high anxiety is that it picks a, picks a very tricky target. It's a spoof of the work of Alfred Hitchcock, but Hitchcock's films are often funny themselves Hmm. and satire works best when the tar and satire itself works best when the target is self-important. Uh, Vincent Camby of the New York times agreed writing that the film is as witty and as disciplined as Young Frankenstein, though it has the built-in problem, Hitchcock himself is a very funny man. His films, even at their most terrifying and suspenseful, um, uh, are full of jokes with shared with the audience. Being so self-aware, Hitchcock's films deny an easy purchase to the parodist, especially one who admires his, subse- his subject the way Mr. Books does. This is There's nothing to send up, really. Um, hmm. Which... Can be and Ebert aren't wrong because it is hard to tackle a filmmaker who has his own built in sense of humor. So instead you are lampooning and satirizing yeah. the funnier, the, the, uh, the, the more, uh, self-important aspects of Hitchcock. And then when you are going into your own form of humor, that's, I mean, like that's, that's basically your own way of like the way you homage, Hitchcock's sense of humor is like you're the director of this film you are imposing your sense of humor into the film so that's the that's that's the homage you're giving is to a director's touch because Hitchcock's humor is very specific it really is it is very yeah. very much there if you watch it in films I mean like Trouble with Harry is an entire film dedicated to Hitchcock's sense of humor um, 
Siskel gave the film three stars out of four and wrote that the parodies of Psycho and the Birds are clever, funny, and recommended. And and recommended. Um, and he also wrote that too much of the film is piddled away with juvenile sex jokes and are simply beneath a comic mind as fertile as the one that belongs to Mel Brooks. Um, now, here's an important review coming up. Charles Champlin of the Los Angeles Times, who would end up writing the definitive word on Alma Revel, um, he wrote that it's probably the most coherent of the Brooks films since the producers in the sense that of sustaining a tone and storyline and characterizations from start to finish as an homage. It is both knowing and uh, reverential as such. I suppose also the quietest of Mel Brooks's films with fewer belly laughs and more appreciative chuckles. I think hmm. Champlin's on the nose here with the exception that I laugh my ass off with this movie through and through. Um, but there are a lot of moments where I, I, I can, I can, because see the point it is making, I can. Yeah. Cause it is so specific and you have to, I mean, we'd all have to remember that. I would argue that the 12 chairs is um, also very specific too in its approach. So like, but blazing saddles, young Frankenstein mm-hmm. silent movie are very scattered films. They have a plot. They have a through line. But they go all over the place. Yes, they do. They move in an epis. They move episodically through a th- through a through line that collectively works all together. Like Blazing Saddles is a movie where they suddenly leave 1874 and pop up in 1974, yeah. and then go back to 1874 for the end of the movie. So this movie, as I said, like it's a Hitchcock script that has a through line. It has a Hitchcock plot. It has a traditional plot. It's being infused with Mel Brooks's satire and sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So he's right. This is one of the quietest of Mel Brooks's films because it isn't zigzagging in different directions all the time. Yeah. No, I, I actually really agree with that. So Champlin's very much on the nose. He may not appreciate it as much as we do, but he yeah, gets it. No, I think he um, does. And yeah. Um, yeah, so, but this film was, uh, this film ha- made some money. It's been regarded as a, as like a very, it seems like there's a solid fan base for this film. Um, in a world where Mel Brooks has created multiple films that have multiple cults around them. Like there's a cult for the producers. Mm-hmm. There's a cult for the 12 chairs, if you can believe it. There's definitely a appreciation for Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. Those are the two biggest things he's ever done um, in terms of successes. Dude, um, Spaceballs. Spaceballs has... I'd argue Spaceballs has the biggest of the cult followings because it is all over pop culture. Yeah. Uh, or at least the way we interact, like the way we interact with Spaceballs is, is ridiculous to the best point possible. Um, and I mean, you know, when you get into Brooks's nineties work, you start seeing like the only real thing that really, really hits a, a chord is Robin Hood men in tights. But Life stinks, and Dracula Dead and Loving It have its fan bases. I think Dracula Dead and Loving It might be the one where people are least appreciative of it. Um, I, I appreciate that film. I think Mel Brooks is funny in that movie, um, and uh, I also think that uh, Leslie Nielsen is doing a wonderful job with Mel, making fun of the Bram Stoker Dracula that Coppola did. Yeah, I just, it, I mean, we we could talk about that movie another time, but. Uh... Yeah. Yeah, we'll do it on another podcast called Mel Brooks uh, Happy Hour, I think. But, I mean, you know, obviously after he does that, he doesn't do any other directing work. So clearly that was mm-hmm. – he just hasn't found a project that he was has wanted to do. He's in his 90s now. I don't see him doing anything of that nature, especially with COVID around. Um, but 
we're wrapped up on High Anxiety, a film that understands how to make a Hitchcock movie without having Hitchcock directly participating in it. Um, and obviously this is a film that when you watch it, you are looking at clearly it's a, you know, it's a, it's, it's a take on it. It's a funny, uh, it's a funny representation of Hitchcock ideas. But if you boil this down to everything that we've discussed for the most part, it is a Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock could have made without the baggage of, if you eliminated all the references Mm -hmm. and blending of characters like the 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 specifically direct ones. This is a movie Hitchcock could have directed, and it would have been it probably would have been middle road or lower tier, but it still would have been a Hitchcock. Movie. Oh yeah, the bones of this movie is straight Hitchcock. Yeah, so this is not, you know, making fun of just one movie. You are making fun of the genre, and that's why I feel that it is the most Hitchcockian, the only movie that uh, the only Hitchcock movie that Hitchcock never directed, mm-hmm. apart from maybe Charade. Uh, Charade yeah. obviously has the elements of a Hitchcock film. I think that Stanley Donan's approach in Charade is um, also a big blend of his own visual style. So you have two very strong forces collaborating. I think Mel's visual style in this film is work on Hitchcock's routine. Don't yeah. f- the humor is yours. Hitchcock belongs to the visual realm. So that's why I kind of say that this film is much more Hitchcockian mm-hmm. than other Hitchcockian attempts because everybody else is compromised by their own attempt at visions. Like De Palma, De Palma, I think we could argue, is the one that comes closest to being Hitchcock the second. But there's also elements of his films that are not specific to Hitchcock. Not every visual angle and motive is working off of Hitchcock. It's just that it's predominantly Hitchcock. Um, and he openly admits to ripping off yeah, Hitchcock. This is not a secret yeah. to him. There's no no break no breaking news here. No, it's not. No, he I mean it's 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 only breaking news to people who haven't looked at all the films in history ever. Um or like at least a majority of them. Um so yeah, but that that wraps this discussion up. Brandon, do you have anything you want to add to the discussion of high anxiety? Um there should have been a sequel because <laughs> great films always have sequels, even if the sequels are garbage. No, that's not true. Um, no, I just, I loving high anxiety. Um, and again, it's sort of like for me represents like a good way of like, you know, blending a real strong understanding of like the technical, um, you know, art that is filmmaking. And then, you know, being able to put comedy into that and making a really strong film. Cause a lot of people think that like making comedies are easy or it's like to actually make one that looks great. It's like, Oh, that's oh, just, you know, make sure that it's lit well enough and, you know, just make sure that the jokes are funny. It's like, no, there's so much more to it than that. And Mel Brooks is so good at it. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I don't think he's appreciated enough. I mean, I'm sure like people understand like how great Mel Brooks is, but I think there could be more people that understand that. It's and it's interesting how people. This can be their entry point into Hitchcock as this Mel Brooks movie. Oh yeah, dude, absolutely. Like, the amount I like I said I hadn't seen any Hitchcock before I watched this, and the more I learned about Hitchcock and watched his films, the more I appreciated High Anxiety, even like more than I already did. Mm-hmm. Because you don't, you don't think unless you know. 
it's weird. Like when you watch this film, having not seen Hitchcock, I'd love to know what that feeling is like, because you may not know exactly what's going on. <laughs> like, like, you know, what's going on in terms of the plot, but you don't know the references. So again, if it's a film that worked for you without no, without any prior Hitchcock knowledge beyond what you're seeing on the screen, that's another testament to how he made a Hitchcock movie. Well, yeah, because this is what I meant before, it, you know, it, at the end of that first airport sequence, you know everything that you need to know about this movie in order to understand it. He set things up perfectly. Yeah. Yeah. He and even that title card gives you an gives you that dedication. Mm-hmm. So if you're watching it and you read read that prior, your impression automatically is like, "Oh, this is stuff that happens in Hitchcock movies, I guess." And then you watch the film as it unfolds. It unfolds in such a Hitchcockian fashion that you're like, "Well, this is Clearly, this has to be a direct remake of a movie Hitchcock made. Mm-hmm. Then you go into Hitchcock's filmography and you realize it's a melting pot of ideas from Hitchcock. Oh yeah. Um, so it'd be it. I would love to know that feeling of having seen this first before seeing Psycho or The Birds. Um, but you know, like I mean, I'm glad I got on my journey the way I did. And you know, but it's cool to know that you know there's a testament to the power of the fact that this movie is so Hitchcockian because it took the time and the detail and the craft to do it. Um, but anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this installment Woo! of the Shamley supplements. <laughs> um, if you want to listen to the Shamley silhouette as of now, it is still on the real nerds podcast feed. Um, I'm working to get it on a, on its own feed um, or tied into the yesteryear ballyhoo review theme feed. We're still working. I'm still working on that right now, but you can still find it at real and you should listen to real nerds podcast. Read the articles that Ryan and Corinne are posting. They're wonderful. Um, and um, uh, on yesteryear Ballyhoo Review, you can find us at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Uh, I'm sorry, Ballyhoo Review Podcast dot com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Ballyhoo Review Pod um, and uh, uh, Ballyhoo Pod. And you can find us on Instagram at Ballyhoo Review Pod. Um, and uh, but on the next installment of the Shamley Supplements. Uh, I believe we will be talking about the many, many sequels and a remake of one of Hitchcock's all-time classic films uh, that we talked about for three hours in episode three about. So there's your clue. It's pretty an ob- it's a pretty obvious clue. I'm not trying to hide anything here. We're talking about the Psycho sequels, guys. Um, but until next time, good night. very clear to me I've got to give in high anxiety you win